0: We say no! We say no! We say no to racism! Martin Luther King Day, January 15, 1981. It was just about two weeks after the seventh black male victim was slain in western New York. But Buffalo faced its nightmare and an ugly demonstration of Nazi hatred with a resounding no to racism. Unity Day, three months earlier, had set the stage for Martin Luther King Day. Black and white citizens and black and white community and religious leaders came together and pledged to fight against racism. But was the pledge an empty one? And what assurances and evidence do we really have that Buffalo is trying to fight racism? Uh, at the time, uh, many promises were made to set up a, uh, a committee that was going to deal with racism. That has not happened. Uh, that was supposed to be spearheaded by the county executive and the mayor. If, it, if it's going to be real, then things have to be done after that. We must follow through on our promises. And I'm uh, very disappointed that it has not happened, and um, I would like to see it happen. If any one group can be cited for trying to make inroads and improve race relations, it is the clergy. At area churches, black and white congregations are attending each other's services and conducting home seminars when church is over, while an organization of 35 ministers and rabbis calling itself The Group meets to discuss racism. And a third effort by the Buffalo Area Metropolitan Ministers, or BAM for short, is trying to organize hearings on housing and unemployment discrimination in the city.
1: I've seen a lot more open sharing.
0: I've seen at least among the, the, the black religious leaders and white religious leaders getting together, really being able to say some things I don't think they would have been able to say a year ago, two years ago. They're really leveling with one another and, and a basic level of trust is building there to the point that I think we can we can take some action. Word yesterday from the DA that a suspect has been indicted in the 22 caliber killing case eased tension somewhat in a city seized earlier by fear and frustration. But Sister Joan Malone of the Buffalo Center for Justice remains skeptical about any real changes in racial attitudes stemming from the investigation.
2: I think the same racial atmosphere that gave rise to the seven murders manifests itself in many other ways in the city of Buffalo. Uh, An increase of racial epithets, racial jokes, stereotypical judgments, compound this with the impact that the budget cuts are going to have on the poor and near poor in our city. We have a very explosive situation
0: if buffalo could capture the spirit and promise of unity day say observers the city could emerge from its period of horror all the wiser rich newberg news 4 update lab tests like these conducted earlier in the 22 caliber killer probe will help D.A. Cosgrove decide if the 22 caliber shells confiscated from the east side home of Joseph Christopher match the markings of the shells actually fired in the 22 caliber killings. This is how the earlier tests were conducted. Well, what we do in the comparison microscope, we examine two objects juxtaposed. Here is the photomicrograph of a cartridge case here, the line of demarcation, another cartridge case here by making a visual examination with the comparison microscope of these striations that run through the line of demarcation. Those are caused by the firing of the gun. The cartridge case slams back against the breech face, causing these marks to be picked up from the gun. When they run through the line of demarcation as we have here, we can state positively that the two cartridge cases were fired from the same gun. Pictures of Buffalo Army Private Joseph Christopher are being shown to witnesses of the 22 caliber and knife slayings in western New York. Christopher has been charged with attempted murder of a black soldier at Fort Benning, Georgia, but Erie County District Attorney Cosgrove will not say whether or not he is a suspect at this point in the 22 caliber probe. Buffalo investigators Lobbett and Rash, who visited Christopher at the Fort Benning Stockade, where he is now being held, are now looking for Albert Benefee, a Buffalo black who survived a knife attack New Year's Eve at the corner of Maine and West Utica. Menefee got a look at his attacker and is considered a key witness in the investigation. The 22 caliber killer probe has lasted seven months and has involved some 6,000 leads for detectives. Seven brutal murders of black males in the Buffalo area have led police here on one of the biggest manhunts in local history. Yesterday, Erie County District Attorney Edward Cosgrove announced the results of what he called an extraordinary police effort, an effort that involved seven months of interviewing more than 2,000 men.
3: An Erie County grand jury has returned an indictment sealed by statue, charging one individual with three counts of murder the second degree
0: the suspect was not named because the indictment was sealed but authorities have been questioning 25 year old buffalo army private joseph christopher currently in the fort benning georgia stockade he is being held there on charges of attempting to murder a black soldier in his barracks at christopher's buffalo east side home and at his hunting camp south of buffalo police have confiscated 22 caliber weapons and several knives among other pieces of evidence and christopher has hired buffalo attorney kevin dillon left Wednesday for Fort Benning. Four other murders of black males, which may be linked to the 22 caliber killings, remain unsolved in the Buffalo area, and detectives from Rochester and New York City are now working with Buffalo's Major Homicide Task Force to see if the killings of black or dark-skinned males in their cities are linked together. Extradition proceedings to bring the suspect from Fort Benning to Buffalo have begun. Meanwhile, inquiries into the remaining four killings in Buffalo, four killings in New York City, and one killing in Rochester will continue. The task force pursuing any and all leads. Rich Newberg, News 4 Buffalo.
3: Brother, sister, there's got to James, I said that before. We have not really listened to Rick James. So I mean, really put "Street Songs," his 1981 mega hit of an album, into context. That song, "Unity," on an album that was released in April 1981, literally three months after they had Unity Day in Rick James' hometown of Buffalo in response to a KKK rally. Rick James context of white supremacy Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date Thursday July 7 2022 so I have been told this is the Catherine Massey book club at the cows doing our meager part to recognize the victims since we uh, victims uh, because of racism forget some of these tragedies and the victims of white terrorism. Folks from now on, they see the book club at the cows. Who is Catherine Massey? Why is it the Catherine Massey book club? Oh. The Catherine Massey book club at the cows presents the eighth study session on absolute madness. Picking up in chapter 12, specifically the part where We begin to hear how Joseph Christopher, his father, Nicholas, uh, apparently was tough on him and they bonded around guns and uh, any of, of Joseph's failures as a man, his father would point out that was where we left off at. Last week, just quickly, we heard some of the audio clips uh, again from Rich Newberg, our reporter, white journalist uh, in the Buffalo area. What he covered from the time we heard about the Unity Day rally and as they start to get evidence to actually indict Joseph Christopher. I just want to point out, man, for 13 years, what have we been talking about at the cows? Racist jokes in the middle of all of this. Unity Day, the Klan is going to march. 22 caliber killer at the time of the unity day march in january there wasn't even an indictment they didn't even have a lead on anyone they go and do an interview and what does the white woman say oh i think that that racism is manifest in buffalo in many ways not just the 22 caliber killing racist jokes you mean like them calling it the son of sambo killer or 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 the one where they said the killer must be a poker player because he's got four spades and two hearts. Remember that? That was a newspaper. Racist jokes. We will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. I will ask since Gus T said that this is mandatory. Hey, we're about halfway through the text. Has this been worthy of your time and energy? In fact, is this important enough for Gus to keep bringing this up every time we talk to these white guests who've written about the history of Buffalo and what have you? How important is this? You all have heard about half of the story. Is Gus wasting your time or is this a really important component of U.S. history? Certainly New York State history. Let us know as we proceed. Context of white supremacy. Audio segment one.
0: Let's go, Buffalo! Let's go, Buffalo!
1: Let's go, Buffalo! Let's go, Buffalo!
2: Though Joey got along well with his cousin, Zack's presence seems to have unintentionally added further stress to his already marginalized self-image. Now Nick had a living example of the kind of son he really wanted. Nicholas Christopher's two major frustrations in life seemed to be his ailing heart and his quiet son. Long before Zach DeFusco married into the family, relatives recall Nick complaining incessantly about Joey. He didn't try hard enough. He screwed up again. He did nothing right, as far as Nick was concerned. The frustrated father seldom missed an opportunity to regale others with accounts of Joey's latest failure, whether it be a Boy Scout project a new skill Nick was trying to teach him that he wasn't mastering fast enough, or his lackluster schoolwork. The berating happened in front of Joey, who never reacted with anger or talked back. He simply looked wounded when his father embarrassed him, face flushed and silent as he waited helplessly for the first opportunity to slip away. People who knew the family could not understand why Nick was so relentlessly critical of his son. In most people's estimation, Joey never did anything to provoke such ire. Neighbors thought of him as a fine boy, always polite and particularly considerate, the type of kid who shoveled snow out of people's driveways without being asked. Perhaps Nick felt the harsh treatment would toughen the sensitive boy, or maybe he just wanted his son to be a carbon copy of himself. Whatever the reason, if he had hoped to inspire his son with vituperation, He had badly miscalculated. At a young age, the disapproval and humiliation had reduced Joey to an often solemn child, diffident and self-conscious, with a personality at times reminiscent of a whipped dog. He seemed to fear being noticed or getting too close to others, lest he do or say the wrong thing and be injured yet again. Joey's problems in school added fuel to the blaze of insecurity. He had a learning disability and had to repeat second grade after failing math and English. His teacher was a nun at St. Lawrence who attempted to correct his academic underachievement by means of a ruler and punishments like kneeling on a hardwood floor. Because he would have been assigned the same teacher, Teresa enrolled him in public school for his second go at second grade. He passed and returned to St. Lawrence the following year. Third grade there had been fine maybe because the teacher wasn't a nun. By the end of fourth grade, however, the nuns informed Teresa that he would be held back once again. Catholic school clearly wasn't the proper educational setting for Joey. Beatings with a ruler are not the recommended course of action for a learning disability. Teresa withdrew him from St. Lawrence permanently and put him in public school. The learning disability was hard to pinpoint. The problem did not appear to be his intellect. During his middle school years, he consistently scored 95 on IQ tests. In retrospect, his early difficulty in school may have been attributable to markedly impaired vision. According to his army enlistment medical exam, his uncorrected vision in both eyes was 2200, corrected to 2025 with prescription lenses. In other words, without glasses he was so nearsighted that he classified as legally blind this could certainly have inhibited his ability to keep up with the class particularly in an era when teachers routinely taught lessons by writing on a blackboard the early failures had severely undercut his self-confidence and he viewed himself as an incapable student thereafter which became a self-fulfilling prophecy over his parents strenuous objections He dropped out of high school in his junior year. Nick never forgave him. By his mid-teens, Joey had begun passively rebelling against his father. He made friends with peers who lived nearby, Peter, Tramantina, and the Chamberlain boys, and started spending more and more time away from home, sometimes staying for days with the Chamberlains. He started smoking, and at seventeen, he got tattoos on both arms. Friends recalled that his father had been unhappy over this. He also discovered a passion apart from any of his father's—cars. Joey loved cars, especially fast ones. At sixteen, while still in school, he got his first job as a lot boy at Gene Emser Motor Sales on Bailey Avenue. Gene Emser and his crew considered Joe an excellent employee—very conscientious, hard-working, with a great attitude. He loved the job. He burst into tears when Mr. Emser told him he had to let him go at the end of the summer. Emser felt very bad about it, but he needed someone full-time, and Joe had to go back to school. Mr. Emser also rented a garage on Weber Avenue a couple doors down from Joey's house, and Joey started hanging around there, working on cars and meeting some of the guys who raced at Lancaster Speedway. By all accounts, Joey had a natural aptitude as a mechanic. He bought a 1967 Camaro, painted black with orange cobwebbing on the sides. He took great pride in the car and washed it daily. He'd only had the Camaro a short time when it was stolen. On May 21, 1976, Nick died of pneumonia following heart surgery. His wife and children were at his hospital bedside when he passed. When the family returned home, they found that their wall clock had stopped at the minute of Nick's death. Joe talked of this eerie occurrence many times over the years. Even in death, it seemed, his omnipotent father had the ability to stop time. Teresa wanted to visit her son. She and her daughter Sophia made plans to go down to Georgia. In his stream of letters, Joe wavered on whether he wanted them to come or not, one moment telling his mother how much he needed to see her, and then writing, often in the same letter, that he didn't want her to spend the money. Though his letters were contradictory and nonsensical, one thing that seemed clear was how alone and isolated Joe felt. Thank goodness for Father Freeman. Father Michael Freeman was a Catholic priest and Army chaplain at Fort Benning, who coincidentally was from Buffalo, and, as luck would have it, had once been assigned to St. Lawrence Church. Although the Christophers hadn't known him at that time. Joe was eager to talk to a priest. He asked to see Father Freeman often and spoke freely with him. That gave Teresa comfort. At least Joe had one person in the army he could turn to. Teresa got in touch with a good priest, who seemed sympathetic and willing to do whatever he could to help. She sent a packet of Joe's letters to Father Freeman so he could better understand her son's fears and delicate state of mind. She mailed them along with a handwritten note. Dear Father Freeman, These are the letters that Joseph has written since he was in the army. Please use them as you see fit to help in his defense. I think they show how unsure he is of his decisions and how lost, confused, and helpless he feels. The letter to his sister especially shows how desperate he is in trying to find someone he can trust to talk to. Thank you for all your efforts in our behalf. Trusting in God's help and yours, I remain gratefully yours, Teresa Christopher. She had no idea Joe's letters would be turned over to the CID. As Easter of 1981 approached, Teresa felt more alarmed than ever. Joe mailed a religious medal back to her, one that his sister Sophia had given him, along with his copy of The Way— A book on spirituality written in 1934 by Jose Maria Escriva, founder of a Catholic religious organization, who said of it, The 999 points which make up the way were written with yearnings to see Christ, the light of the world. Anyone who reads it with the same yearnings will not have opened this book in vain. While millions of copies had been sold by 1981, The book was variously described by Catholic leaders as something more than a masterpiece. To a bizarre amalgam of traditional piety, penitential discipline, and crude popular moralizing, its readers are exhorted to childlike simplicity, to silence and discretion, and to orderliness. They are encouraged to pray to guardian angels, and to the souls in purgatory, and to bless themselves every day with holy water. But they are also urged to acquire professional competence, to stand out from the crowd, to lead, and to dominate. And photographs of his family. That made Teresa fear he had given up. Perhaps he felt that the army had been his last hope for a meaningful life, and now that it had gone up in smoke, so must he. Maybe things had already gone irrevocably wrong for Joe long before and Fort Benning just happened to be the site of impact, like a plane with a failing engine that sputters and coasts a few miles more before the final inevitable descent. The more she recalled, the more the peculiarities in his behavior might have been harbingers of something much more than depression. His suspicions that people were sneaking in the house and stealing from him, sleeping with a shotgun in his bed because of a sudden fear of intruders, His strange compulsion to hide spoons and forks all around the house, walking around wearing camouflage and a rumpled army jacket with his hair shorn off, even before he enlisted, as if he were already on active military duty. Even his late embrace of Catholicism, which had delighted Teresa, had been intense and irrational, going to church every day then announcing that he was going to enter a seminary and become a priest, after he had already joined the army. Perhaps Teresa should have recognized the signs earlier for what they were. But what mother wants to admit her child has lost control of his mind? She believed that her son's illness was caused by extreme stress and poor nutrition, and further that if they could get Joe home, where he would have the support of family and friends, His mental problems could be successfully treated. The knife attack at Fort Benning, Teresa believed, had been a tragic, isolated aberration. Joseph did not have a violent nature. Of this she felt certain. He was a compassionate and kind soul, sensitive and humble. He had never wanted to dominate or cause harm. All Joe had ever really wanted was love and approval. April 19th was Easter Sunday. Teresa prayed very hard that weekend. She prayed for her son, and she prayed for the man he had injured. She asked for God's divine help and blessing, and a resolution for her anguished son. At 3.30 p.m. the following Wednesday, April 22nd, unexpected visitors arrived at her home. Teresa Christopher opened her door. Before her stood a man with several more behind him gathered on her small front lawn and driveway. Teresa didn't know the man at the door, but she recognized him from television. Edward Cosgrove stepped forward and spoke to her, and life as Teresa Christopher had always known it came to an end. Chapter 13 Something very odd was happening on Weber Avenue. Bob Schmidt lived in 94 Weber with his wife and children. His car was in the shop that Wednesday, and Bob's father had picked him up from work to drive him home. As they turned on to Weber, they noticed cars parked on both sides. They couldn't even find a parking space. They pulled up in front of Bob's house, across the street from the Christopher's. As Bob stepped out of the car, he noticed that there were a lot of people coming in and out of the Christopher house a lot of men he had never seen before. Some were carrying bags out of the house, but they definitely were not movers. Bob stepped inside his front door and his wife, Cheryl, met him there. She asked if he knew what was going on. He was about to ask her the same question. All Cheryl knew was that two detectives had come to the door about a half an hour before and asked if she knew Joe Christopher. She replied that she did. She told them Joe was in the army and they told her, Yes, we know that. They showed her a picture and asked if she could identify it as Joe Christopher. Yes, that's him, Cheryl had replied nervously. She had no idea why they were asking about Joe, and they never said. After showing her the photo, they thanked her for her time and left. The schmidts were not the only neighbors who noticed the sudden invasion of their normally sedate street. It was hard to imagine anyone living on Weber Avenue who didn't notice. People stepped out on their porches, peering up and down at all the unfamiliar vehicles and at the gathering crowd of unfamiliar faces clustered in front of the Christopher house. The cars parked up and down the block were unmarked, and the men wore shirts and ties and holstered guns. Police. One woman looked out and saw that the street had been blocked off at both ends, News trucks were pulling up beyond the barricades. This was surreal. What could possibly bring this onslaught of police and reporters to quiet little Weber Avenue? She looked over at the Christopher house, and suddenly it dawned on her. She turned to her husband and said, Oh, my God! It's Joe! He's the killer! A young man named Dave arrived at the Christopher home. Unlike the phalanx of men who were already there, he had been expected. Dave was dating Angela. As he recalled that frenzied day, I went to pick her up and it was like a swarm of bees around a nest. I thought, what the hell is this? It scared the hell out of me. I went in the side door and these men kept asking me who I am. They wouldn't say who they were. Finally, I had to show them my ID. One guy showed me his ID and asked what I was doing there. I told him I came to pick up Angela, and he said I'd have to wait for her out front. So I went and sat on the front steps. She finally came out a while later. She was pretty upset. I asked her what was happening, and she said it had something to do with her brother. I hadn't known her for very long at the time. I didn't even know she had a brother. I didn't know they had a firing range in the house either. The firing range in the Christopher basement would be mentioned many times by the media. In actuality, it amounted to a portable bullet trap and a disorganized clutter of reloading equipment and gun parts. Nicholas, Joe, and others had fired weapons down here, however, and that made the cellar a focal point of the search. The unfinished basement, with its pale yellow cinder-block walls and maze of pipes running along the low ceiling, looked ordinary in most respects. There was the usual washer and dryer, chest freezer, mishmash of old furniture and aged household items long forgotten. The only distinguishing feature might have been the sheer volume of things packed within. Cabinets and numerous shelves built along the walls were crammed with a staggering number of tools, large and small. Various outdoor equipment— and many boxes and varieties of ammunition. There was a desk and long, wide workbench, both piled high. Above each, affixed to the ceiling, hung several jars filled with screws, bolts, and miscellaneous hardware. Tom Rowan had been assigned to the basement. He and a half-dozen other officers searched down here, primarily on the lookout for a specific type of ammunition and a specific model of gun while their colleagues searched a bedroom on the floor above. Teresa Christopher sat at her kitchen table with D.A. Cosgrove and Investigator Sam Slade, while more than a dozen law enforcement officers delved through her home. Edward Cosgrove had politely introduced himself at the door and presented two search warrants, one for her house and garage on Weber Avenue, the other for the cabin in Ellington, Detectives spotted a detached shed in the backyard on Weber, and an assistant D.A. was dispatched to secure a third warrant. Teresa retrieved her rosary beads and sat placidly with the rosary clutched in her hand. Both Slade and Cosgrove spoke kindly and gently to her, reassuring that the officers would finish as soon as possible. Other than to confirm that Joseph Christopher of Fort Benning, Georgia, was her son, and asking that she direct them to his bedroom. They did not ask her any questions. A gun cabinet in a hallway off the kitchen contained four rifles and boxes of ammunition. A few feet away from Joe's bedroom, a small sparse room with off-white wood paneling on the walls, an old and thinning liver-colored carpet covered the floor. In one corner sat a low single bed with a small nightstand beside it. To the right of the bed was a shallow closet with no door. In another corner was a chest of drawers and some wooden chairs in a haphazard stack. The room had a single window, and the walls were bare, except for an indistinct framed print on a side wall, a nature photograph tacked above the bed, and the mounted head of a buck hung directly opposite and facing the bed. Everything within, furniture, lamps, the scant linens, was worn and mismatched, colorless and somber. The joyless effect was so complete that it felt almost staged, as if a set designer had been told to craft a room that reflected suffocating despair. The rest of the first floor, while not as dismal, was not particularly cheerful. Low ceilings and wood paneling in the living room and dining areas gave the home a somewhat dark and closed atmosphere. Then there was the living room memorial to Nick. The prominent photograph of the late Nicholas Christopher, surrounded by vigil lights, was described by the officers as a shrine or altar, and a few found it macabre. As Joe Cooley recalled it, it struck me as very unusual and a little morbid, frankly. The dim living room with this shrine to the father as a sort of centerpiece, the whole effect was as if you were in a funeral home. Tom Rowan didn't feel the shrine was morose, but it did strike him as a significant psychological indicator. Rowan, who had taken FBI courses in criminal profiling, viewed the memorial as a clue to the dynamics of the family. As he recalled, an absent father is important in the positive or negative development of the son. This was an artifact that conveyed the feelings of someone in the household. We didn't totally understand what the significance was, but we knew it was noteworthy. It was photographed and mentioned in reports. Assessing the character and psyche of their subject was a matter of great interest to the task force. The April 14th call from Sergeant Tom Carr at Fort Bennings to Buffalo Police had immediately drawn serious attention. Carr had related Christopher's statements to the nurses about having committed murders in Buffalo and New York City. He explained the nature of the charges that the army had pending against Christopher. Carr also advised that Christopher was under psychiatric supervision and would probably never go to trial due to insanity. Christopher's army records showed that he had not been in service at the time of the fall of 1980 murders, and he'd been on leave during late December through the early days of January. Buffalo Homicide requested fingerprints and photographs of Christopher from the Army and checked their own files in the meantime. Joseph Christopher had no criminal record. He had last owned a vehicle, a pickup truck, in 1979. The only local government documents on him, other than his birth certificate and school records, were his pistol permit application and its subsequent suspension. Christopher had applied for and received a license to carry a pistol in 1978. His application listed his date of birth as July 26, 1955, and an address on Kale Street in Buffalo. He was self-employed as a handyman doing home repairs and remodeling. On April 1, 1980, he had gone to Precinct 16 to report that one of the weapons on his permit, a 22 caliber automatic Beretta pistol, was missing. He told the police that sometime in February, he had placed the gun in a green Army-style backpack that was hanging in the basement of his Weber Avenue home. When he searched the backpack on March 31st, the weapon was missing. The police report was forwarded to the county pistol permit administrator. Two weeks later, Joseph received a letter informing him that his permit had been suspended and that the remaining 11 handguns registered on the permit had to be surrendered. The following month, Joseph sent a letter stating that he had turned over his permit and all of the handguns to Buffalo Police Officer Zach DeFusco. The task force started with Officer DeFusco. Summoned to the District Attorney's Office for questioning, Zach said he had known the Christopher family for about 13 years, and that Joseph was his cousin by marriage. He described the Christophers as solid, stable people. Joe had two older sisters, Sophia, who was around 28, and Lorraine, who was a year older than Joe. Lorraine lived in an apartment that Nicholas had built years before on the second floor of the Weber Street home. Joe's younger sister, Angela, was 18. Zack described Joe as a normal kid, a bit moody. Joe had given his father a lot of heartache when he was alive, as Nicholas had felt that Joe didn't live up to the expectations he had for a son. As Zack understood it, Joe suffered feelings of guilt after Nick passed away. He had become withdrawn. Asked about the weapons collection, Zack said most of the guns were kept in the cabinet on the first floor or in the cellar. His uncle always had a lot of firearms, both long guns and pistols. The Army had overnighted a package that included some photographs taken of Joseph at Martin Army Hospital. They showed the photos to Zack, who was stunned at how much weight Joe had lost. Asked about Joe's appearance, Zack said he had always worn his hair short and was clean shaven. They asked Zack to take a look at the composite sketches of the twenty-two caliber killer and see if he could make a comparison. He really couldn't, which wasn't much of a surprise since the task force couldn't see the likeness either. Investigators also contacted Zach's wife, Louise, who described Joe much the same way as her husband. Both the Defuscos had been surprised when Joe went into the army the previous November. Louise recalled that Joe had become very religious in the last couple years, and had even talked about becoming a priest. They were asked if any members of the family ever had any difficulty with blacks, or harbored any notable racial resentment. Louise recalled that several years ago, when the two older girls were in high school, one of them had become interested in a black male who was in her group of friends. Nicholas had come home one day to find the black man at the family residence, and he was quite upset over this. As for Joe, he had black friends. Zack mentioned a couple of black guys who Joe hung out with at Costanzo's Bakery. One he remembered in particular was named Louis, who went fishing with Joe a lot. As far as Zach and Louise knew, Joe was a normal person and had normal relationships with his family and everyone else. He had a girlfriend who he had lived with for a while, a couple years back. They thought her name was Donna. Donna Van Olden was listed as a reference on Joe's pistol permit application. Donna had a permit herself. On Good Friday, Investigators paid a call on her mother. They assured her that her daughter was not in trouble, but emphasized that Donna should contact them immediately. The Monday after Easter, Joe Cooley and Mel Lobbit interviewed Donna at her apartment. Donna Van Olden was a slender, attractive woman with auburn hair. She was in her mid-thirties and lived alone. Joe Cooley did most of the talking while Mel Lobbit took notes. They asked if she owned a gun, and she said yes. They asked if she had a permit for it, and she said yes. They asked if she knew Joseph Christopher. She said yes and wanted to know why they were asking. They told her they were investigating the twenty-two caliber killings. Donna laughed. They explained they were following up on old leads and needed her full cooperation. Donna thought this was ridiculous. The police must have really run out of options if they were investigating Joe. Cooley and Lobbett were not laughing, however. They wanted to know everything she could tell them about Joe, and they obviously knew a few things about their relationship already. They asked how long she and Joe had lived together. She told them from about April 1977 to late November 1978. They had been introduced in early 1977 by a mutual friend, Peter Tramantina. The investigators wanted Peter's phone number, and she gave it to them. Joe Cooley asked if he could use her phone. He dialed Peter's number and left a message for him to call the state police. Donna started to feel nervous. What is this? Joe wasn't even in Buffalo. And even if he was? They asked if Joe used drugs. They asked how she got along with members of his family and if anyone kidded Joe about his relationship with her, since she was nine years older. They wanted to know about his employment, his guns, if he was ever violent or had any perversions. They asked a lot of questions. Adana was afraid she'd be taken downtown if she didn't answer, although she wasn't sure why she should be afraid. It was the shock of it all, really. Two cops in her home, Asking all these questions about Joe Christopher, of all people. The whole thing was crazy. Her mind flooded with thoughts, memories. Donna answered everything she could, telling the truth could only help Joe because the truth was very good, for the most part. He didn't move in all at once. It had been gradual, though it was fairly soon after they met. He would come over and bring a few things, stay for a day or two, and then return home. They had never officially decided to live together. It's just how things progressed. Donna had needed some work done in her house. There was a door that needed hanging, and the bathroom needed remodeling. She asked Peter if he could do it. Peter agreed and said he'd bring along his friend, Joe, who was really skilled at that sort of thing. That certainly proved true. Donna was very impressed with the work. Joe had ended up doing the whole thing himself. And surprised that he wanted to charge her so little for what was obviously a professional grade job. She wanted to pay him more, but he refused. She didn't want him to feel like she was taking advantage of him, especially since she definitely wanted to hire him again. She asked if she could at least take him out to dinner, and he agreed. Joe had immediately been fascinated that Donna was a certified pistol instructor, a girl who liked guns. She even belonged to a gun club. They had a lot to talk about. She told him about the club and offered to take him to the range where they practiced, at Canisius College, and introduce him to the other members. They went on a Sunday, and he joined. He took some courses, and before long he was an NRA certified instructor himself. Donna was very impressed with him as a teacher, especially how attentive he always was to firearm safety. He brought her to his house and showed her his father's gun collection. His father's guns meant a lot to him. Actually, in Donna's view, everything his late father had ever owned seemed to mean a lot to him. All of Mr. Christopher's tools and personal belongings in the basement and garage, and both were absolutely loaded with his things, were left exactly as they'd been at the time of his death. The guns held a special place with Joe because obviously the collection had been dear to Mr. Christopher. Joe had been in a hurry to get a pistol permit so he could register the handguns in his own name. He asked Donna to put the guns on her permit in the meantime, and she did. Joe was afraid that otherwise they would go to his cousin, Zach DeFusco, who was a cop. Joe didn't want that to happen. He was afraid Zach might sell them. Joe considered the guns family heirlooms and wanted them all to stay in the family. He became a little preoccupied by this, and was upset when his mother once mentioned that she wanted to give one of Mr. Christopher's prized firearms to Zack. He was adamant that his cousin should not have any of his father's guns. Donna gathered there had been some sort of a sibling-type rivalry between Joe and his cousin for the affections of Mr. Christopher. She'd gotten the impression that Zack had been the more favored of the two, even though Joe was Mr. Christopher's own son. Donna didn't believe that anyone in Joe's family was critical or disapproving of her relationship with him. She got along well with all of them and described Mrs. Christopher as very kind and soft-spoken, a person who never yelled at her son or anybody, even when Joe was sarcastic toward her. Donna had never met Mr. Christopher, as she hadn't met Joe until almost a year after his father's death. His memory was very much alive, however, perhaps too much so. As time went on, Donna felt the family dwelled on Mr. Christopher's death and never put it in the proper perspective. Joe used to spend a lot of time at his father's grave, just sitting there as much as a couple of hours at a time. He seemed to be on some kind of guilt trip regarding his father's death, although she didn't know why. As for drugs, Joe smoked marijuana often, and he had experimented with speed and acid. He had once injected Valium and got hepatitis. Donna couldn't stand any of that. She never used drugs, and though she wasn't judgmental about his use, she had made it clear from the start that she wanted no part of it. He always respected this and never used anything in front of her nor tried to persuade her to partake. Joe had a difficult time holding jobs in spite of the fact that, in her opinion, he was an excellent mechanic, very handy. And there was very little he could not do. He and Peter had worked as unarmed security guards during a strike at one of the local factories. When that ended, he had done some freelance work and auto mechanics and home repair, but nothing seemed to last. She had helped him get a job in the maintenance department at Canisius College. That had lasted a little over a year, until he was fired for sleeping on the job. When asked if Joe had any difficulty with blacks or any discernible racial hatred, she answered with a definite no. On the contrary, Joe became very friendly with a black co-worker at Canisius named Ernie. They partied together all the time, got stoned, and socialized extensively. Joe and Ernie eventually had a falling out some time ago, but she didn't know what it was about. It might have been because Joe got fired and Ernie didn't but she really didn't know. In any event, Joe had never expressed any racism or any strong feelings about race. Toward the end of their relationship, Joe became very preoccupied with something that was obviously bothering him, but he wouldn't discuss it. She couldn't speak with him. There was very little conversation. He just drifted away. He would go out at times and walk for hours all around the city, And on a few occasions, he was gone all night. She didn't think he went to bars because he wasn't really a bar person. And for that matter, he didn't drink much either. Just a seven and seven once in a while. He had never been out of control drunk. Their breakup had been amicable. No hard feelings on either side. He moved back home and they kept in touch sporadically. He never explained why he wanted to end their relationship. On the occasion of the final breakup, he had broken into body racking sobs and was apparently very confused and in great distress. She felt bad because she would have liked to help him with whatever difficulty he was obviously experiencing. The last time she saw Joe was about May of 1979. It had been a very unusual encounter. She had called and asked him about some parts for her car. He told her to come over and he'd put them on for her. He looked very different. He was very thin, almost gaunt, and he had a brush cut. He was wearing his father's old clothes and just had a strange look about him. She asked him what was wrong. You look like hell. Why are you dressed like that? He didn't answer right away. He told her to follow him into the garage to get the car parts. When they stepped inside, he shoved her against the wall and pinned her with his forearm. He said, you're here, let's make it. Let's not waste time. He was grabbing at her and at the same time trying to undo his own pants. This was a shock. Joe had never been aggressive. She told him to stop, that it was over. She didn't want any of that. He was overpowering her, and he was very strong. The look in his eyes was something she never saw before. She was afraid of what she saw. She wasn't kidding or joking with him. She told him again to knock it off. It was over between them, and he told her, no one's here, and wouldn't stop. Finally, she screamed and told him, get away from me. I'm getting married. Get off. She wasn't really getting married. She'd only said that to get him to back off because she was scared. He stopped grabbing, but he did not let her go. He grinned at her, and it was weird and frightening. She had no idea what was going through his mind. Joe had never acted like this before. She shoved him away and said she was leaving. As she stepped out the door, he said, Wait. She stopped and turned to look at him. He still had that awful, frightening grin. So you're getting married, he said. Joe wanted to know to whom, and she said it was immaterial. She told him, Let's just remember what we had. What's wrong with you? He said, Let me get you the parts for the car. And suddenly he reverted back to the way he was. The grin was gone, the crazy, menacing look wiped away. In an instant, he was Joe again, as if someone had flipped a switch, as if the few minutes that had come before had never happened. Sometime later, she told Peter about it. Peter told her it didn't surprise him because Joe had recently had a similar altercation with another woman. Peter told Donna he was concerned about Joe because he was acting funny. Donna told the officers that other than the changes she saw in him near the end, Joe's behavior during their relationship had been normal. Other than the preoccupation with his father's death and his eventual withdrawal from people, she wasn't aware of any abnormalities. She only recalled one odd incident when Joe, who was quite the camera buff, asked her to go to Forest Lawn Cemetery and pose among the tombstones so he could photograph her. She felt that was sort of weird. The officers asked to see the photographs, and she showed them. She said she still felt spooky about it and didn't understand the significance. They asked if she had any photographs of Joe, and she brought a few out. Cooley picked up a couple of them and took a closer look. He asked if he could use her phone. Mel Lobbit made small talk with Donna while Cooley made a call. She was smiling and nodding politely at Lobbit when she overheard Cooley say, We got something, and it looks like the break. Donna suddenly felt cold. Lobbit continued talking, but she didn't hear a word he said. Break. What is he talking about? She thought. Cooley hung up. He said they'd be going now and thanked Donna for her time. He said he'd like to take a few of her photographs. She said that would be okay as long as they were returned. They thanked Donna again and told her not to talk to anybody about any of this. After they'd gone, Donna felt upset, a little shaken. She went over the conversation again and again in her head, especially those last ominous words she had overheard. We got something. She had no idea what that could have meant. Did they really suspect Joe of being the twenty-two caliber killer? Had she said something that made them suspicious? Why did they want her pictures? They were only snapshots of Joe and some other people at the cabin. Maybe she shouldn't have told them about the incident in the garage. It was so wildly out of character for Joe anyway. But it had popped into her head as they kept asking over and over again about his behavior, and she had been afraid not to tell them. They were going to talk to Peter. And what if he told them and she got in trouble for not saying anything? Donna had never been questioned by police before. She found it intimidating, even though they had been very courteous. She hadn't meant to say half those things, most of which struck her as irrelevant and silly anyway. They had asked so many questions as one hour had become two, and they had this way of asking things, putting forth the same question over and over, rephrasing it a little each time. And before you knew it, you were so far down the rabbit hole and feeling somehow like a trapped rabbit, even though they were being so nice, and you knew there was no escape until they decided to let you go. And they'd asked if Joe was a good hunter. He was, but not as good as they were. Alone in her apartment, with the strange discussion with the officers swirling through her mind, Donna thought about things that they hadn't asked and wouldn't have been interested in anyway. She called him Chris. She called him Joe when they were around other people, but when they were alone, it was always Chris. He liked that. He called her Babe, and that was one of those sweet things between them, these nicknames they had for each other that were only for the two of them. His mother and sisters called him Joey. She could tell that irritated him that they still used his little boy nickname. He never complained, though, which was typical. Joe never went off on anybody, family or otherwise. He just got quiet when he was mad. He'd get a certain look on his face, but he rarely said anything. It wasn't so much the nickname that bothered him, but what it seemed to represent, namely that, in Joe's view, they still thought of him as a boy instead of the grown man he was no one would think to call zack zacky he didn't like it when his mother asked zack's advice joe thought his mom and sisters should be coming to him if they needed anything and it seemed like they didn't unless it was some little house or car repair he was the only son and the man of the family now and he should be consulted on family decisions and not be viewed as just a handyman He would confide in Donna these little complaints and frustrations, all of which seemed perfectly ordinary to her. What family doesn't have their little resentments and rivalries? She wondered about Mr. Christopher at times. Joe had such an attachment and spoke of him in such glowing terms. Once, when they were down in the basement of his parents' home, he showed her a broken shotgun that his father had smashed when Joe did something that displeased him. About two-thirds of the shotgun's stock was missing. Donna wondered why Joe had kept it. Joe liked taking her out to the cabin in Ellington. They'd even taken Donna's sister and her kids out there on a couple of occasions. When he was outdoors, in the vast fields of rural New York, or hiking the Adirondacks, he was truly in his element. He could never take enough nature photographs, as if he wanted to preserve every moment spent in rustic land. Joe loved the cabin, and another little family tension had arisen when Mrs. Christopher wanted to will it to her grandson, who was just a baby. That hadn't gone over well with Joe at all. Still, the frictions in Joe's family seemed pretty par for the course. The jealousy of his cousin might have been a little childish, but everybody's got their hang-ups. Donna had otherwise found Joe mature for his age, except for maybe the stupid thing with smoking pot and dabbling in other drugs. He'd never been obnoxious when he was stoned. He and Peter would just get silly and laugh a lot when they were high. And Joe got more talkative and joked around. It seemed like a manageable flaw when balanced against all of his other good traits. Her first impressions of Joe had been what a gentle and thoughtful man he was. He was a protector, and that extended to Donna as well. He made her feel safe. Other men she'd known had made her feel anything but. How ironic that her youngest boyfriend had also been the most calm and considerate. The nine-year age difference between them hadn't bothered him, but it had bothered her. And though in hindsight she felt a little ashamed to admit it, she'd been embarrassed by the relationship because he was so much younger. She had sometimes downplayed it to her friends, hesitant to admit the level of their involvement or to introduce him. He had once come to her office and asked for her. He'd been working on a little project, repainting and fixing up her car, and he wouldn't let her see it until it was all done. On the day he finally finished, he was too excited to wait for her to come home from work. He wanted to show her right away. She went outside with him and told him how great it looked. Fresh paint polished chrome. He was very proud. When she got back to her office, a co-worker asked, Was that Joe? Donna felt self-conscious, admitting that yes, that was her boyfriend, and at the same time she felt guilty about her ambivalence, all the worse, since Joe had just done this sweet thing for her. Eventually she grew more comfortable taking him to work parties or functions with her friends. Nobody seemed to care about the age thing but her. Donna's mother adored Joe. Because he was younger, maybe too much younger than she in her view, Donna had perhaps always had it in the back of her mind that the relationship would end at some point. Therefore, when it did, she had been neither resistant nor surprised. Her overriding emotion in the breakup was concern for Joe. He started changing around August of 1978. Suddenly, and without warning, he became very distant, And in his own head all the time. Joe had always been a quiet person, but there had never been a silence between them. He stopped talking and often looked very grave and distracted. She asked him what was wrong. Sometimes he would tell her, Nothing, and shake his head. Other times he answered, I don't know, and he had an anxious look about him. He would never explain, but she could tell whenever it became too much for him, whatever it was because that's when he would go out and walk and walk, as if trying to walk his problems off, or at least outpace them, or maybe just to exhaust himself to the point where he could fall into a deep sleep. Three months after it started, he called her one day at work. I can't do this anymore, he told her. She went home and found him in a very emotional state. He said he had to leave, had to move back home. He couldn't explain it. He just had to go. The remarkable thing was his distress, as if the breakup was giving him more pain than he could endure. But if that was the case, why was he doing this? Donna was sad when he left, but also a little relieved. Something very heavy was going on with Joe, obviously, and if he wasn't willing to let her in, there was no point in going on together anyway. She'd never been able to figure out the scene in the garage. What could possibly have come over him? She didn't think he was stoned. She'd heard he quit the drugs. And this didn't seem like a drug thing anyway. As she'd walked down the driveway that day, away from him, she had hesitated at the side door of the house. She had an instinct to go inside and to talk to his mother, explain what had just happened, and tell her. Something is wrong with Joe. But how could she tell his mother? How embarrassing. Ultimately, she decided not to say anything and just left. She'd later regret that decision for the rest of her life. Maybe if I had said something. It occurred to Donna after the police had gone that the garage incident had not been the last time she'd seen Joe, after all. It had been about 3.30 a.m. when Joe had called her at home, crying, sometime in March, 1980. He asked her to pick him up near a lounge on Bailey Avenue. When she got there, he was sitting on the curb in front of a car dealership. He looked like he was in bad shape. He sobbed and told her, I'm all nuts up. She didn't know what to do. It wasn't drugs or booze. He was sober. She thought he was having emotional or mental problems. He seemed to be coming apart. She took him for some food and calmed him down. He asked if he could come back and live with her. She told him that was impossible, that it was over. She felt very concerned about him, but she had another boyfriend at the time. She dropped him off at his mother's house, and later worried that she had left without seeing that he got inside. He called once more, sometime after, another desperate plea in the middle of the night. She could make little sense of what he said. He cried so hard. Something is wrong. Something is wrong in my head. What do you mean? She'd asked. He sobbed. I don't know. I don't know. The fear in his voice. She talked him through as best she could, but she just couldn't do any more. She had no idea what he was trying to tell her. It made her heart ache to hear him so lost and frightened. But she simply didn't know what to do. They'd been apart for over a year now. She couldn't keep going to his rescue. She kept tabs on him from afar. Peter, or her nephews, would run into him occasionally, although it seemed to be more by chance. From what she heard, Joe seemed to be closing in on himself and avoiding everyone, even Peter. One of her nephews had run into Joe on the street during the summer of 1980 and spoke to him. Joe didn't seem to know who he was. Donna wanted to put all these sad and worrisome things out of her head. She didn't want to remember the bad times. There'd been so much more that was very good, quite wonderful, actually, before this unfathomable change. He'd been good to her, to everyone, and in their quietest moments alone, no one had ever made her feel safe and relaxed like Chris. They would lie in bed and he would rub her back, and they would talk about the day and whatever was on their minds. He often talked about the responsibility he felt for his mother and sisters. How he wanted to take care of them, and how he worried that he would never be able to fill his father's shoes. Donna didn't quite understand why this weighed so heavily on his mind. She'd assure him what a fine man he was, and tell him there was no reason why he had to fill his father's shoes. She told him good things about himself, true things, and though sometimes he smiled and warmed to the praise, she sensed his doubts not of her sincerity, but of himself. No matter how close they seemed to be, there was a subtle yet palpable emptiness in Joe, a lonely void that she couldn't help him fill. And that was the thing about Joe that was good and bad. He could give comfort, but he seemed unable to receive it. Joe Cooley and Mel Lobbett returned to the task force with the photograph of Joseph Christopher holding a Sturm Ruger 10-22 rifle. The following morning, Tuesday, April 21st, Lobbett and State Police Investigator Thomas Rash boarded a plane for Georgia. An FBI agent met them at the Columbus Airport and drove them to Fort Benning. They met with CID agents and reviewed Private Christopher's file. They interviewed the nurses at the psych ward. They spoke with Lieutenant Colonel Levine, staff psychiatrist at the Martin Army Hospital. Dr. Levine told them that Joseph Christopher was a very sick individual, medically and psychologically, and in need of help. Christopher was uncommunicative. He would not answer questions or talk with anybody unless he initiated the conversations. According to Dr. Levine, Christopher avoided direct questions and direct answers. Christopher had once asked him if it was better to lie or tell the truth. On three separate occasions, Dr. Levine said Christopher had made homosexual propositions, once to Dr. Levine, another to a psychiatric staff security member, and once to a patient. In the last instance, Christopher had said something to the patient about going to the latrine for a blowjob. He had said this in the middle of the ward loud enough for anyone to hear. All of these propositions had been blatant and out in the open, which could have been the whole point of a desperate contrivance. Homosexuality had been declassified as a mental disorder by the American Psychiatric Association in 1973, but it was still grounds for removal from the military. There was no question that Christopher wanted out of the army. He also wanted to stay out of the stockade. Statements such as those he'd made could assure that he remained in the hospital psychiatric ward. Though there were undoubtedly homosexuals in the army, men who really desired sex with other males were hardly open about it. On the contrary, unabashed propositions were almost a sure means of making sure it wouldn't happen as any soldier stating such a thing would be separated and closely watched until he received the almost certain discharge. Lobin and Rash apprised Dr. Levine of the homicides in Buffalo and showed him the psychological profile prepared by the FBI. After reading it, Dr. Levine expressed amazement at how accurately much of the profile fit Christopher. The doctor then expressed some concern about the security of Joseph Christopher while in the hospital. Later that afternoon, the army moved him from the hospital back to an isolation cell in the stockade. Christopher's army lawyer, Major Donald Morgan, informed Lobbitt and Brash that they did not have his permission to speak with his client. Further, Major Morgan had visited Christopher and advised him not to answer any questions from either the Buffalo investigators or the C.I.D. Laban and Rash contacted the task force with their findings at Fort Benning thus far. Edward Cosgrove filed for the search warrants on Wednesday morning, and shortly after, police had descended on Weber Avenue and the Ellington cabin. Hours passed in the grey, clabbered house of Teresa Christopher. Except for when she was asked to unlock cabinets in the basement, she remained at her kitchen table. Sam Slade stayed with her, more to say a few gentle words to her once in a while than anything else. Looking back on that day, Tom Rowan felt it was fortunate that Sam had been there with Mrs. Christopher. In addition to being an outstanding investigator, Sam had a knack for making people feel at ease. He was a genuinely compassionate man, and there wasn't a cop in that home that day who didn't feel sympathy for Mrs. Christopher. As Joe coolly recalled it, you had to feel sorry for her. This poor lady, her kid is bonkers, and now we're tearing her house apart. She was very calm and cooperative, but you knew this was eating her up. Night had fallen by the time the searchers left Weber Avenue. As soon as the barricades came down, searchers of a different kind invaded the street. So began what one resident described as a month-long infestation of reporters. They knocked on doors, barged down driveways, and made phone calls to many of the neighbors. They'd soon be followed by curiosity seekers, or worse. Life had suddenly changed dramatically for everyone on Weber Avenue, especially for the shocked and heartbroken in the Christopher home. The glare of notoriety had only just begun. The following day, Teresa Christopher wrote a letter to her son. Thursday, April 23rd. Dear Joe, I just want you to know that I'm at... left blank... for a couple days, until all this hullabaloo is over. Please excuse me for not writing sooner. I was a little upset when you sent back your medal and the book, The Way, that you had wanted with you. Sophia has talked to Major Morgan and we know what has happened down there. I am sorry you felt so depressed, and please know that we all love you and could never believe the things they are trying to say about you. We have not given any information to the press, and they are making up totally unfounded stories gleaned from people down there and ridiculous fantasies. I am wearing the medal you sent home, and it does help me to feel closer to you because I know it was last worn by you. Don't worry about us here at home. We know with God's help it will all be worked out for the best. I prayed, Holy Saturday, that this burden would be lifted from you and that everything would be resolved. If this was the Lord's answer, he sure threw us a thunderbolt, didn't he? Spiritually, I am with you in every thought and prayer. I wish I could be there with you, but I know the press would be right on my neck if I dare come near you. All our neighbors are sticking up for you, and Father White was over and said that he had talked to the Catholic chaplain about a month ago and asked him to do all he could for you. He also said he was going to write to you. No matter what happens, Joe, please know that we all love you dearly and need you to be in our lives just as we want to be in yours. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son— that whomsoever believeth in him should not perish, but gain everlasting life. You, dear son, are also my only begotten son, and I love you dearly. Mom. On April twenty ninth, the grand jury returned a three-count indictment against Joseph Christopher for second-degree murder in the deaths of Glenn Dunn, Harold Green, and Emmanuel Thomas.
1: Rick
3: James, Rick James, Rick James, if Catherine Massey book club at the context of white supremacy, if I didn't have so many things to say, we would have heard Rick James right there, too. But business at hand. Now, uh, so we ended chapter 13. We will start chapter 14. Absolute madness. Catherine Massey book club context of white supremacy right to business. Now, she said, let me rewind immediately. She said, I normally don't even do this. I normally don't even do this. Let me catch where we are exactly in this here text. 466. Six. All right. So she says, Ernie's going to come up. Later in the book, let me see. Oh, Ernie's gonna come up a lot in the book. Let me see. Let me see. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, wow. Ernie's gonna come up a lot. Ernie's gonna come up a lot. Ernie's gonna come up a lot. Let me see. The reason I'm mentioning this immediately is because of her commentary about uh, Ernie saying, you know, hey, I don't think. You know this guy's racist or whatever uh, that we heard in the text. I want to see if she comes back to that because he's mentioned so many times later in the text uh, about hmm. Wow, do some black people. Whew yes yeah, she's not uh, she is not mentioning so I'm going to say this now because it looks like she has not mentioned this in the text although Ernie does come up a lot I guess they call him to trial eventually so you know the prosecutors thought we heard remember that from OJ Simpson right so they bring you in they talk to you and all that and have you said nigger before we got to practice that <laughs> all that nonsense right Mark Furman so Ernie is apparently going to be a major part of this case as we move forward. So we will hear lots from him moving forward. His time getting high with Je- Jesus Christ. Sobriety would be. Can you imagine? You are hanging out getting high with Jeff Dahmer, which apparently might have happened to. <laughs> can you imagine? Sobriety would be best. Uh, So we'll hear lots about Ernie. So much to look forward to. I said we've only read about half of the book, a little over. It looks like in all of these mentions, she does not mention something that is in Joey 22. So I'm doing the immediate rewind to get the foot or what I highlighted from chapter 13. She said, wow, Ernie is mentioned tons in this book. So I guess we really only heard like the first time uh, that Ernie pops up in the text. Uh, so at first of many times hearing from Ernie, she says when asked if Joe had any difficulty with blacks or any discernible racial hatred, Donna answered with a definite no. On the contrary, Joe became very friendly with a black coworker at Canisius named Ernie. They partied together all the time, got stoned and socialized extensively. Joe and Ernie eventually had a falling out some time ago, but she didn't know what it was about. It might have been because Joe got fired and Ernie didn't but she really didn't know in any event Joe had never expressed any racism or any strong feelings about race in fact I will not even share because you will get to hear from Ernie directly so I will get an opportunity to share this later but there is a footnote in the waiting from Joey22 totally different book we had Matt write on the book and just from my casual look even though there are many Ernie is going to be huge, I guess, in this text, rolling forward when they get to talk about getting high and blah, blah, blah. Was he racist and all of that? So we'll get an opportunity to hear directly from him. Did they have a falling out? If so, what was it about? Uh, but it just my t- quick look. It seems no. She does not mention a tidbit from Joey22 that I think is important. So we'll save that footnote for later. There were many things that I had commentary on. My goodness. Context of white supremacy. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. If you would like to participate. The number again. 720 716 7300 the code 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate we'll have to be patient on this one to see mr gride again he did say pellinero got it wrong with certain aspects of this case we'll have to pay attention to see where You know, where might there be some points where he says this is incorrect based on his coverage of this case as it unfolded? Now, as I said, there are many things to say. Many listeners wrote in. I'll share their comments and even wow. Some of the newspaper reports uh, to kind of corroborate some of the things that we heard first person uh, who wrote in, High Gus and Callers, my thoughts on the last couple weeks of reading. The author has done an amazing job of making the victims look guilty and deserving of being murdered, whilst at the same time making the serial killer into a sympathetic character. If I was more confused, I would actually end up feeling sorry for Joseph Christopher by the end of the book, even the halfway point. The Lewis Carroll quote was a clear attempt to give the sense of him being childlike and innocent. Lewis Carroll is suspected of being a pedophile. Alice was a real child who likely was molested by him. Lots owe that in the system of white supremacy. I agree with the callers that the author included the letters to his mother, more though this week, to create the image of him being a kind, loving son bullied by people in the army. However, listening to them, However, listening to them made me think of the analysis given by the person, sorry, don't remember his name, who gave the character analysis of the likely perpetrator. He talked about the possible incestuous relationship with his mother, and there was something about those letters that unnerved me. I also wondered about his clearly abusive relationship with his former scoutmaster father. Who took him on trips to the woods why was a 22 year old wetting the bed now that's you know hey, excellent question I had not really thought about that but I mean hey they do you know list that as one of the sometimes side effects not saying it's causation but I mean sometimes that is a side effect of people who have experienced some sort of sexual violation particularly in their childhood years uh, where they can have difficulty with bladder control, you know, genitals, kind of be a sensitive area, that type of thing. So that is something to consider. And even all of this Father White and, you know, these priests and what have you, like, hey, the record speaks for itself. Like anybody would like to do some research. So is Buffalo are they involved the archdiocese in buffalo do they have any settlements any of the people here that have been named father white any of these folks mentioned here any cases child rape that was one thing that i did when we read uh, lucky because we they were talking about the uh, catholic church there as well to see if they had any of this going on in upstate new york well about western new york you can check that also she continues Listening to his letters to his mother, it's also clear to me that Joseph Christopher was perfectly sane. He gives his mother clear instructions, for example, canceling the contract for building work on the family home. He is very aware of how he plans to use his time in prison to develop his reading skills, is carrying out experiments to test his diet, and is also very informed about his food and the level of nutrients he was consuming the author tries to give the impression that joseph christopher stealing food from stealing food from the army kitchen was evidence of his weird behavior i just think it's more evidence of how well his brain was functioning and him being calculated was he mad or just greedy his mother is trash and a liar well tell him how you feel a psychiatric nurse who didn't spot her son had mental issues until he tried to stab someone to death? A woman who spends time making excuses for his behavior, but no word of sympathy for the victims or their family. Mm. I doubt very much that he was the only army recruit experiencing bullying. Say it twice. Finally, there is no way Joseph Christopher suddenly started stabbing people at the age of 22 without showing signs of of deviant behavior when he was young oh, <laughs> for example killing animals that's what they say all that hunting he did have that mounted buck uh, killing animals as a child I also think I also think him watching the other non-white soldiers at night was sexual mmm lots of homoerotic behavior in this here text much obliged so there are other people who emailed in we'll sprinkle in the emails as we proceed uh let's see if folks have commentary listening in folks are i guess spectating we'll get folks uh hands as i see them and then we'll get in emails so i guess i'll get in one more email now and then i can get in the rest of the emails as we proceed oh yikes and even more of them came in yikes all right uh let's see uh Let's see. Oh, okay, this is. Whew. Don't have to read that one. Get that one uh, as well. I had a number of folks, interestingly, I will share this one because I had several folks, uh, and I think it's even the same audio, saying that the audio went out halfway through the sixth session for Absolute Madness. The audio for all of the sessions is complete. Uh, even the one that someone told me about, I checked it. It's complete. I will send out various links uh you can check stitcher apple podcasts blueberry uh podbean uh that's just what i can think of uh you know immediately uh but numerous folks tested various links and said, oh man there's a problem and then i just sent them other links so could be you know usual suspects uh but Much obliged uh, for folks tuning in. If you have a problem, just drop me an email, and I will send you a variety of links to check out, stream, download, however you access the content, uh, to make sure that you, you know, are listening uh, to the content. All right. So that's one. I'll get in one more, and then get to some of my notes. Uh, Let's see. All righty. Different investor wrote in. Another fac- Greetings, Gus. Another fascinating supplementary broadcast regarding Buffalo and racism, white supremacy. Oops, oops. Shrink it. Can't get it. all the text. My goodness. What happened to the text? What is going on? There we go. Yikes. That is crazy. I couldn't even get all the text in the screen there. All right. All right. Great. Uh, another fascinating supplementary broadcast regarding Buffalo and racism, white supremacy. The author's brother, uh, so this is uh, for, I guess, was that Sunday? Monday time is rolling so quickly. We've had so many programs. Uh, Dr. Neil Kraus was with us just a few days ago, and so his, Dr. Krauss's brother white brother dialed into the program the author's brother calling into the broadcast was interesting I have listened to a lot of author interviews with call in from the public and don't recall a similar occurrence that's what I said was he riding shotgun protecting Gro from those worthless Negroes question hey we've done many programs and I even when we've had non white people I do not remember like a sibling or parent or spouse like hanging out. Like I said, maybe the the, uh, I think it was Ashley white woman. She was on the program uh, and her partner, I think boyfriend, non-white male cowbell. I think he was there and he did, you know, join us briefly to kind of give some views, but I can't really, I can't really think of another example, at least immediately, neither here nor there. Chapter 12, number one, learning, disability may have been attributable to markedly impaired vision according to his army enlistment medical exam his uncorrected vision in both eyes was 2200 corrected to 2025 with prescription lenses Without glasses, he's classified as legally blind. I did read that the vision testing in public sco- is in public schools is weighted towards distance vision, and close-up vision is not tested, which is more relevant in terms of reading and writing. Something to keep in mind as a parent. Now, I will say that is very common. I think there are many uh, examples where children have had all kinds of problems in school and particularly for black children like oh man you are about to be special education that might mean uh, uh, medication that might mean even disciplinary problems you might be suspended and all the rest of it if they say oh my goodness you're not doing your work in a timely manner and you're messing around and got raping tendencies and all the rest of it and the problem is really I can't see I can't see, so I can't read. I can't do these assignments. I can't get on the tablet and just go whizzing around because I'm having some vision problems. Like, that is very serious for many, many children. I still don't think that that leads one to go out butchering and carving out hearts. But, you know. Number two. Teresa felt more alarmed than ever. Joe mailed a religious medal back to her, one that his sister Sophia had given him, along with his copy of The Way. The Way is described as a textbook of spirituality published in 1934 by St. Jose Maria Escriva. It has sold over 4 million copies and is in 43 languages. Escriva also initiated the Catholic organization Opus Dei, Opus Dei was characterized as a criminal organization in the novel *The Vinci Code* by Dan Brown and subsequent movie. This portrayal was denied by the Catholic Church. Hmm. Incidentally, talking about unprecedented, I don't think we've read a book before where they have a footnote, and I mean immediately within the sentence they went and read the footnote about the way like I was totally confused for a minute like trying to catch like oh wow there as soon as they mentioned the way they have the footnote number they went in, and this book doesn't even have footnotes but there was a footnote for the way and they read it Im- that doesn't even happen we've done all these audio books even when we like myself and some of the other folks black female in Florida and some of the other folks uh, over the years decades who have participated in narrating normally we don't even do that it would be read to the end of the sentence and if the footnote is really important include it at the end of the sentence not right in the middle of the sentence you hop down and read the whole because sometimes the footnotes can be like a paragraph they can be kind of lengthy and then hop back up not to mention that's just I'm I'm not sure that that is done. Period in audiobooks. I don't think they generally read the footnotes. Like that's kind of a. I mean, you know, they got those book nerd shirts. That is kind of a book nerd scholarly thing. Like, let me hear the footnote. <laughs> like, whoa. Anyway, number three. The mounted head of a buck hung directly opposite and facing the bed souvenirs of their kills is very important to racist man racist woman and racist child we have talked about this i asked dr lay this here fella carving out hearts do you see a connection to clan activity in the history of racist souvenirs of negros let's see number four as for Joe he had black friends one of the most confusing and dangerous aspects of non for non-white victims in the global system of white supremacy racism talk about that all the time Racists can be friendly I mean racists sometimes marry non-white people they can be real friendly number five Donna was a certified pistol instructor a girl who likes guns he was an NRA certified instructor himself. Both sexes demonstrating their love for the great equalizer. Welsing moments indeed. Many of them in this text. Number six. Any difficulty with blacks or any discernible racial hatred? She answered with a definite no. On the contrary, Joe became very friendly with a black co-worker at Canisius named Ernie. They partied together all the time. Got stoned. Joe had never expressed any racism or any strong feelings about race. Mm. In, in fact, that's even odd, because many people say that exact sentence. Talk about <laughs> that's so strange. Pause on that for many reasons. But our, our our listener wrote: Echo, sobriety would be best under conditions of racism, white supremacy, especially if you think you might. Whoops. And end up doing shots with Jeffrey Dahmer, Joseph G. Christopher, Peyton Gendron, Dylan Roof, any other race soldier. You don't even want to smoke a cigarette with them, I don't think. Now, let me see. It might take me a moment to pull up that exact sentence. But I mean, that right there is significant to me to have the exact sentence used where people say, oh no, Joe never had any strong feelings on race. It'd probably take me too long to pull it up immediately because there are a number of different reports that are relative to this week. So, give me a moment and I'll pull that up too. Number seven, last time she saw Joe was about May of 1979. He was very thin, almost gaunt, and he had a brush cut. He was wearing his father's old clothes and just had a strange look about him. He shoved her against the wall and pinned her with his forearm. He was overpowering her. Dr. Levin said Christopher had made homosexual propositions Christopher had said something to the patient about going to the latrine for a blowjob anti-sexual and homoerotic behavior seems to be associated with this type of violence in white culture serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer and incels involuntary celibate white males for example hmm is a pattern, unfortunately. Uh, Number eight, he was a genuinely compassionate man, and there wasn't a cop in that home that day who didn't feel sympathy for Mrs. Christopher. You had to feel sorry for her. This poor lady. Her kid is bonkers. And now we're tearing her house apart. (laughs) Again, I suspect there would have been a very different response if Christopher had been black. Say it three, four, five, eight times underlined bold bold face print. I do not think they would have been saying, oh my goodness, you know, oh, O.J. is bonkers, you know. Old, old Jamal is just bonkers. Oh my goodness! And you've got to feel sorry for old Orenthal's mother. Oh my! We're tearing through her house, and oh no, not at all. They don't even have sympathy like that for the mothers of victims. Frequently, <laughs> matter of fact. Remember when that child fell in the zoo? Cincinnati came up in all this. I think that's where Joseph Paul Franklin killed some of those black people. Remember when the child fell in the zoo? This is like 2016. It fell in the the gorilla pit and they had to kill the gorilla. They didn't feel bad. About the mom, like all oh, all this, it was oh my god, that crackhead woman, and man, we had to kill old There There's no count crackhead woman. You should have been watching your child. Like, are you serious? Come on. Uh, and then he goes in chapter fourteen. We didn't get that far, so we'll pause right there. Untiljusticeatgmail.com is the email. Uh, and for folks who are listening, email, live, whatever it is, even if you're listening to the archives, T said that this is mandatory. Part of that, certainly at this point, we've had so many guests on this program talking about Buffalo, the history of Buffalo, history of New York State, racism, white supremacy. Man, we talked about this case every time, even. Matt Greta talked about this case extensively Dr. Frank Dobinson so you will not really appreciate all of those programs and the information in those programs without reading this book and or participating listening to the book club so that's one of the reasons the other like hey as I said we've read about half of this book a little more than that at this point so everybody if you've listened if you got this far hey you should be able to make an assessment. Now, has Gus been wasting your time? Is this some foolishness? Like, oh, man, some black people got killed. That happens tons. Like they that, Every day. Turn on the television, Highland Park, the Buffalo again. That's all the time. So, I mean, hey, you know, that's really sad, but what's the big deal about this case? Maybe that's true. Lots of crime in the system of white supremacy. Lots of guns. Is this case important is this case one that should not have been forgotten particularly with all of the details since we've been hanging out talking about this for closing in on two months is what you've heard a significant historical event and something that not only helps you better understand what happened most recently in Buffalo East Side Tops Grocery Store Does it help you understand the system of white supremacy, racism, what it means to be white, dare I say, even white culture? It should be providing detailed information on all of that and with that, the historical importance. If not, then that should be said like, hey, man, Gus, you messed up. Yes, this is sad, but it's not really that important. It's a lot more important things that we can maybe even should be talking about than this foolishness that happened in buffalo 40 years ago barrier mom did you have uh commentary should be with us
4: um yes thank you for taking my call greetings to you and everyone on the line um i was thinking when uh the part about uh his vision um when they were saying that he wasn't able to uh, think Sarah's vision was a 20 or 2200 or 2300. Um, anyway, um, I notice now that um, there's a van that comes to the, uh, well, I don't know about every school, but in the district I work in, there's a van that comes to the school and they, they test the children's vision and they uh, bring them back the, some the glasses. Um, as well, whatever it is that they're, um, they got from the testing that they drive right back and call the children out and they come to the van and I guess maybe they look at themselves in the mirror as well and look at how they look in the glasses and see if they can see better. So that's what they're doing in, um, my district as far as that, because that does, um, hinder, um, one from learning, uh. And it's too bad that the mom, it doesn't sound like she had to work, that the mom didn't, um, notice anything until after he started killing, um, all those black people. And then to the, oh no, the mom was a nurse, so she did, she did something. So, okay, I remember the mom was a nurse, so I wonder if he learned some of those cutting, precise cutting skills as far as, uh, from his mom. And if he took some of her tools at work too, because he had a lot of cutting tools, and if he used to take um, some of her tools when he was younger, torturing animals. Um, I'm just, I just have random thoughts uh, when they um, start um, going in about uh, his childhood, and uh, I knew he had a thing with that uh, that cousin, uh, cousin-in-law. I didn't uh, trip off the fact that the cousin in law was an officer um, and and even with the uh girlfriend the uh I didn't know the girlfriend was older either, so uh mm, desperation so I guess they did the one thing they did have in common it just kind of built on that, and then with him being so handy and cheap and I thought that was kind of neat too that because I think a lot of his craftsmanship. He got from his dad, so he his dad was able to instill uh, something in him. I just think, um, on top of him being a brute, the dad, the mom, she knew the dad. She knew what kind of guy that guy was. She, I don't know. I just, I'm just not buying that. I'm not saying that she didn't know that. Okay, so. Okay, I'm a mom too, so you do believe in your children. But you had to have signs. It wasn't, man, I don't know, and then we baby him too. So he was so pampered and baby. That's why they just call him that little baby name. Even his sister, he has that baby name. And, um, uh, when the lady was telling the, um, officers or the investigators that, uh, when she saw him again, how he, how he had put on, he had on his dad's clothing. Oh, so maybe his dad was aggressive like that. You know, all whatever they're calling um, a man's man. Maybe all that Brutus from Popeye stuff. Maybe his dad was like that. Oh, and so he was trying it out with those clothes. Mm. So anyway, um, this is good. So I don't believe that he's a good guy. I, I think that white people always take up for their own regardless. There's always an issue. I wish we did do that same stuff with ours. Um, they're all coming together, the whole neighborhood. Even the officers, they feel sorry because they feel sorry for her. Like she's... Ooh, and they feel sorry for her, and they feel bad that they probably didn't even tear her house up the way they would a normal um, um run-in. So I'll leave my line. Thank you for taking my car.
3: Much obliged, Bay Area mom. I was thinking the same thing. Like, they would have tracked mud all through the house. And uh, where's the crack cocaine at you've got crack haven't you been smoking like oh it would have been totally different it would have not have been oh this is terrible I feel so bad for you wipe our feet on the rug two or three times oh it's terrible get out of here Uh, and we the uh, previous caller that was her theory that I think it was several folks that was their theory that hey maybe the dad was abusive we don't know you know physically abusive sexually abusive who knows Uh, but maybe the dad was you know this brute figure and then he dies he feels he needs to to reenact that especially if his dad is doing all this chastising him about his failures as a man anywho much obliged uh, Bay Area mom let's see N- Miss C, I guess, and or non Clemson grad.
5: Hello, Beth. Hello, California listeners. I uh, just wanted to comment um, on some things that I heard uh, during tonight's um, book study. First, I want to comment on how the neighbors, all the white neighbors on uh, Weber Street, responded as though it was totally um, unexpected. And everybody was interested in what was going on at the Christopher's house. Um, and it, it seemed like the white neighbors, they were insulated from crime or accountabilities for the crime that is committed among the white community. And um, they they kind of ended the scene by one of the neighbors saying, oh, my God, it's Joe. He's the killer. As though people back in the 80s, especially white people, didn't have uh, the central television in their house where everybody has the, the news on all day long, and they didn't see like the composite sketches, um, on the news. And they could have said, like, oh, he looks vaguely familiar. He kind of looks like the neighbor. But, um, I, I just think, uh, that whole scene just shows how either they were ignorant of it or they refused to, to believe that it was possible that it was Joey Christopher. Um, Also, I want to mention that um, it's possible that he had an obsession. He and his other family members had an obsession with the father. Um, Not only did they have the altar or the shrine dedicated to Nicholas Christopher and, you know, he had been gone for five years. Um, I think Joey Joey kind of had like an Oedipus complex, but towards his father, and that may be the source or the reason why um he may have like homo homoerotic tendencies um because he could never amount um so much in his father's eyes, even though he exhibits a lot of masculine qualities like he's resourceful um he's interested in guns in cars, and like. Fixing things as a handyman or a mechanic, hunting, fishing, um, the outdoors, nature, all that stuff. So those tend to be like more masculine qualities. Um, but his father just like he's not manly. His father na- never forgave him for dropping out of school, um, his junior year and he didn't consider him, um, to be dominant. He was anything but, and he was, I guess, too sensitive. Um, So as a result, after his father died, I think the guilt comes from him not being able to gain that validation and acceptance from his dad. So then he's like seeking it out um, from, I guess, what he thinks to be the epitome of of masculinity and fatherhood, which is the black male. So that could be another reason why he's murdering all these black men. Um, So yeah, it's just, it's very interesting. Um, I also want to make note that, I I don't know if anybody said it already, but the family had a firing range in their residential home in the basement. (laughs) I have never, I've never heard of anybody do that, but I know white people build these these lavish homes they have like wine cellars and they have um they have like uh like trap doors into secret rooms and bunkers and all this kind of stuff so who knows what's going on in the house um but in in this basement and in the man cave and the shed and the garage all that kind of stuff all you saw were again artifacts of what people typically associate with masculinity um which is like tools power tools, guns, ammunition, um, things focused on survival, necessities, um, yeah, fitness, all that stuff. So very interesting um, what the investigators discovered in this in this white, white household. And with that, Hello. hold on, um, non-Clemson Grab wants to add one thing.
1: Hello, all. Um. One thing I hope everyone's having wonderful day. One thing that I wanted to add was that um they talked about his uh vision being twenty two hundred Now, personally, when I was a kid um that was that was my vision, and as a kid um because you know no one realized that I could not see at the time, so one of the things I would do is that I would try to move to the front of the class so I could see the board, and I would constantly get in trouble for it um It caused a lot of issues until everyone finally figured out that I just was I was friggin blind and um bringing it back to joey um joey um they probably thought he was retarded or something like that because he couldn't read or do math he was literally online so it probably added to a lot of the you know miscommunication between what they thought his problem was and their ability to help him you know maybe people would have realized some of the problems he was having earlier in his life maybe they wouldn't have misdiagnosed him as something uh, as someone who simply wasn't just crazy but someone who simply just needed a little bit of help, like, I don't know, a pair of glasses mean uh, little things like that. And uh, that's one thing I wanted to ask. Thank you. You didn't you didn't go
3: start killing people and knifing people in the chest because you had vision problems growing up? That didn't happen?
1: Well, I got help. So I got my glasses. So, you know, I
3: just need the opportunity. Oh, okay. Okay. And And you all don't have a shooting range in your basement now, you and Missy? We got a crawl space. <laughs> right on. Right on. Non-Clemson grad. Missy, they they have a crawl space. Not a firing range. <clears throat> mm. All righty. Um, whew. Made me reset what I was going to go to my my notes. I'm just going to the newspaper articles, so I've been collating at this point. Gusti has collected two hundred fifty eight articles plus on the Joseph G. Christopher case That's not even counting the reports on Cynthia Wiggins, Buffalo in general other topics around the buffalo issue just related to Joseph G Christopher so one of that 258 plus uh this is Friday May 1 1981 suspects friends worry this is from the courier express they got a bunch of these types of reports uh Even as the process of returning Joseph G. Christopher to Buffalo was beginning, some of those who knew him best said they refused to believe he could be involved with crimes such as those of which he is accused. The whole thing is ridiculous and I'm apprehensive because mistakes have been made in the past where the wrong person has been accused of something like Anthony Broadwater said a young Buffalo woman who has been one of Christopher's closest friends friends since the late 1970s the disbelief shared by members of the bisonet Pistol and Rifle Club like are you serious are you serious the Bisonet Pistol and Rifle Club who helped Christopher obtain National Rifle Association certification as a pistol instructor in 1977 and 1978 I would be embarrassed like oh my god he was a good instructor he was good on the range, and he was very safety conscious. He wasn't a troublemaker. He was a good worker, said Iris Stone, one of the founders of the all volunteer bisonite organization which has trained hundreds of area residents in gun safety and handling Stone said Christopher spent a year with the club and earned his certification although Christopher's family has refused to talk with outsiders several other close acquaintances who knew Christopher from the time he left Burgard Vocational High School during the 1973-74 school year until he entered the army last fall agreed to talk about him yesterday he dropped out I felt like he was a black person just parlor Edwards, Ernest Shorty Jones, they to drop out, flunked out, no count, not nah, he left. Just saying. Uh, during those years, Christopher a mechanical whiz. Really? <laughs> Talking about Harry Potter? Avid outdoor sportsman and camera buff received NRA pistol instructor certification worked for a year as a maintenance man at Canisius College worked for a short time as an unarmed security guard and attempted to make a go of working for himself by doing mechanical repairs for friends and neighbors he lived at home with his mother mother and two sisters after a third sister married and his father died in 1976 and friends said he did nothing that would indicate a bent towards violence or crime He was a sensitive compassionate individual I didn't consider him to be a loner because he had an outrageous personality and was easy to get along with said the young buffalo woman the woman who was questioned extensively about Christopher by police a week before his name was made public agreed to discuss him yesterday but asked that her name be withheld I suspect This is Donna. I could be wrong. Hmm. Uh, She said she has refused until now to talk to reporters and said she will... uh, Goes on to the next page. Give me one sec. Said she will not grant other interviews about Christopher she painted a picture of a young man who liked to do all kinds of mechanical repairs but wanted to work on his own a man who rode a bicycle or walked because he could not afford a car yet often refused payment for his services or charged paltry fees he enjoyed doing all kinds of things for people who had no other means she said I think it gave him a sense of satisfaction she said Christopher's only steady employment between 1974 and 1980 was a short stint as an unarmed security guard for a local security agency during a strike when the agency agency's union employees refused to work and a year spent as a night maintenance man at Canisius College uh, College officials said Christopher was employed in the maintenance department from February 1978 to March 1979 when he was fired after being caught sleeping on the job three times let's see yep this is Donna one of the things that impressed me about him then is that he was not materialistic said the young woman a bisonette club instructor when she met Christopher socially in the late 1970s and provided him with an entrance to the organization he didn't worry about not having a car or about not having a lot of clothes he lived at home and made do with what he had one of the small luxuries he did have was a 35 millimeter camera that had belonged to his father he was a real camera buff and enjoyed taking pictures outdoors he taught me everything I know about cameras she said he was also devoted to his father and was deeply affected by his death from the complications of heart trouble in 1976 I think he was very proud of his father's mechanical abilities and skills and he used to talk about that the woman said like all of this and it just goes on and on and on the same sort of thing that you know he's just such a great guy and he went to church and I just don't believe it and blah 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 and they have lots of newspaper reports they have another one that was in the New York Times this is a local Buffalo paper in the New York Times I think it's uh, friends mystified Uh, I can give you the title I've got it right in front Buffalo suspects friends are mystified and that's the one where they talk about he didn't have a racist bone in his body Like what are you talking about racist Uh, Let me see. Let me do some of my actual notes. Uh, I have no idea because there are no footnotes. I have no idea where she got this information about Joey looking wounded when his father embarrassed him. Like, did friends tell her this? Uh, Was this written down? Is this in a diary? Uh, she says, neighbors thought of him as a fine boy, you heard it in the newspaper, polite, particularly considerate, the type of kid who shovels snow out of people's driveway without being asked like, again, he sounds way cooler than any of the people who got their heart cut out, way cooler than even 14 year old Glenn Dunn car thief, potential rapist um at a young age, the disapproval and humiliation had reduced Joey to an often solemn child, difficult and self-conscious with a personality at times reminiscent of a whipped dog? <laughs> like, what? Again, there are no references like, is this your interpretation? Did somebody say this? Like, what? Let's see. White people and their dogs, Welsing moment. White dog, indeed. Uh, in court, And we got the people talking about the eyes. Let's see excellent employee all this for a college dropout uh, the the surprise when the letters Teresa's writing to him he's writing back and she says that ter- uh, Teresa Joey's mother surprised that these letters become a part of the investigation anybody if you're in greater confinement there's no expectation of privacy I think uh, we played recordings of mumia abu jamal when they have the interruption he'll be talking and it'll say hey this call is being monitored uh no three-way they give all the instructions how much time you have left like there is no expectation of privacy i think that's been standard operating procedure they read all of the mail you could be trying to coordinate some sort of breakout or other you know nefarious activity let's see already mentioned the footnote sleeping with a shotgun in his bed because of sudden fear of intruders. What in the world? <laughs> is this is this normal behavior? Does anybody else do this? You sleep with a shotgun because of it now, particularly with this fella. So who are the intruders? Anyway, I thought it was important. The wording, she said, uh, Teresa, uh, she said, Joseph did not have a violent nature, even though he was a hunter with a buck in his room of this. She felt certain he was a compassionate, kind soul, sensitive and humble. He never wanted to dominate. Wow. Word choice. Hmm. Okay. Okay let's see chapter those are in the chapter 12 chapter 13 firing range in the basement she listen to she says the firing range in the christopher basement would be mentioned many times by the media in actuality it amounted to a portable bullet trap and a disorganized clutter of reloading equipment and gun parts Now, I want to know if anybody out there, do you have a portable bullet trap and reloadable equipment gun parts in your residence where you have fired a weapon? Maybe that's standard in White Houses. I've never heard of a such. I don't even know what a bullet trap is. Uh, I mean, while she does uh, Teresa just is the greatest thing in the history of the world. She goes, she gets her rosary beads and sat placidly with the rosary clutched in her hand. Both Slade and Cosgrove spoke kindly, gently reassuring her that the officers would finish as soon as possible. like R.U.C. They remember when they talked to uh, Colin Cole remember that he was choked in the hospital almost choked to death and he said I'll sleep with you myself they didn't say that they talked to him gentle and kind he's being detoxified and almost killed they didn't say they talked to him sweet and kind and gentle we're going to get this over with I'll sleep with you myself if you give us the information let's see I had a nearly fuller moment they said a gun cabinet in the hallway off the kitchen who has a gun cabinet near the kitchen does does anybody have that the gun cabinet next to the kitchen maybe I'm just being foolish a gun cabinet in the hallway off the kitchen contained four rifles and boxes of ammunition a few feet away was Joe's bedroom a small sparse room with off white wood paneling fuller say what's off white is it white or not maybe that adjacent white maybe that's what that is Said uh <clears throat> we got the book. The shrine they said they some of the police officers found it macabre. As Joe cooley recalled it, it struck me as very unusual and a little morbid, frankly, the dim living room with its shrine to the father as a centerpiece. The whole effect was as if you were in a funeral home. Necrophilia. That is a part of that Jeffrey Dahmer, the killing, and then you keep some of the dead body parts and got to take it with you and that sort of thing, a finger or whatever it is. Part of white culture. Zach mentioned a couple of black guys who Joe, Joe hung out with at Costanzo's Bakery one he remembered in particular was named Louis who went fishing with Joe a lot as far as Zach and Louis knew Joe was a normal person and had normal relationships with his family and everyone else he had a girlfriend who he had lived with for a while a couple of years back they thought her name was Donna I thought that was interesting because I thought that was the name that was used the shooting of Emmanuel Thomas uh, does Donna live here or something like that and then the shooting happened I go back to look to make sure Uh, But again, the Peyton Gendron, the whole reason we're reading this right now, Peyton Gendron hung out with Grady Lewis for hours. That's what the report said. Gave him his key because he had his uh, discount card on it. Right. So he could go in the tops and get you know, snacks or whatever he was going to get. Had to be fueled up to go out and do some killing. And then he came out and chatted it up for two hours. Presumably gave him his keys back. White home. I think Dylan Roof had black homies too. Jeffrey Dahmer, for sure, had black homies. Let's see. Christopher and all this drug use. Uh, I think if these victims. Had been doing speed and acid and habitual consumption of cannabis, which was illegal at the time. They would have been described very different. Uh, let's see. Canisius College, that was the other one. If anybody wants a research project, I did so much research. Canisius College, I never even heard of Canisius College until we started doing all this on Buffalo. This is October 29, 1996. So this is a good 15 years after the events that we're talking about. Letter to the editor of Griffin newspaper in West New York. Canisius College responds to bigotry. We, the faculty of Canisius College, are outraged at the recent attacks which have occurred on campus we completely abhor the bigotry and hate which appears to have motivated these attacks to the attackers we send this message you have done a terrible wrong we are ashamed of you and you should be ashamed of yourself it is you not the victims of these crimes who are unwelcome here and they have a lengthy list of signatures I have not been able to track down what exactly happened at Canisius College in October of 1996. Now, I mean, ooh, what else happened in October of 1996? ninety would have to go back and, yeah, I'd have to go back and and look to see what else happened around the same time period. But, hmm, what incident of bigotry? Did they have a need to have so many people take a full page ad out in the Griffin newspaper? If anybody would like to dig October 1996, Griffin College bigotry. Let's see any other notes. When asked, oh, I got that one coming back to Ernie. I said necrophilia she only recalled one odd incident when Joe who was quite the camera buff asked her to go to Forest Lawn Cemetery and pose among the tombstones so he could photograph her she felt that was sort of weird the officers asked to see the photographs and she showed them she said she still felt spooky about it and didn't understand the significance she goes on I thought this was important just because there have been so many times Where white witnesses have deliberately lied to police, have accidentally forgot to share information for her to make this so flagrant to say maybe she shouldn't have told him about the incident in the garage. And again, this is one. Did Pellinero interview her at some point? Did she write all this down? There are no footnotes. Uh, It was so wildly out of character for Joe anyway, but it popped into her head as they kept asking over and over again about his behavior and she had been afraid not to tell them she hadn't meant to say half those things most of which struck her as irrelevant and silly anyway they'd asked so many questions as one hour had become two and they had this way of asking things putting forth the same question over and over rephrasing it a little each time and before you knew it you were so far down the rabbit hole same metaphor comes back again and feeling somehow like a trapped rabbit even though they were being so nice and you knew there was no escape until they decided to let you go and they asked if joe was a good hunter he was but not as good as they were even that like are you serious all of it and it's again giving the impression like I don't really want to help these guys catch a killer like if he's innocent then that's hey let's tell the truth so we can hurry up and get through all this I didn't even want to tell them this information like and then again they will say that that's Negro culture no snitching they don't cooperate with the police that's the Negros let's see anything else keeping a broken shotgun as a souvenir. (laughs) Uh, Oh, and the age difference, I thought that was so important too, like Woody Allen, because they're so young at the time, like this is someone, if it's a nine-year difference at that time, Joseph is like, I think, 24 at the time that he's 81 when he's caught. So, I mean, they would have been rewind. They would have been like 20. She'd have been basically like 30. It would have been basically like 30-20. Subtract the year, 30-21, 2029 20, either way like that is I mean if it's 2029 20, we're talking he's not even legally able to drink when they're hanging out and whatever you want to call this like yeah that is something I would feel some type of way about I think anybody if you had a child like and they were 20 with a 29 year old again now, if it was 39 and 30 yeah 49 and 40 yeah I wouldn't care but 20 is quite different from the you can't buy alcohol at 20 for a reason let's see they mentioned the gun specifically someone asked about that uh, she did a lot of them she didn't even tell about these other incidents uh, let's see if him you know having breakdowns or whatever you want to call it Uh, other notes but I'll leave them all of our neighbors are sticking up for you I don't even know what that means (laughs) like what what (laughs) Like you shoveled the snow for free and so now I'm going to go out and he didn't do these killings well how do you know that well he shoveled my snow okay uh, I will pause there. We will go ahead and get that. But again, this is like, wow, w- lots of white sympathy for a serial killer butcher. We will get started. Man, oh man, Absolute Madness, the Catherine Massey book club at the cows, Absolute Madness by Catherine Palinero picking up on Chapter 14, Context of White Supremacy.
2: Chapter 14 Kevin Dillon came from a family steeped in legal tradition. Dillon was a 31-year-old criminal defense attorney with a firm in downtown Buffalo that already bore his name, Dillon & Cataldi. Kevin was the oldest son of Justice Michael F. Dillon, a presiding judge of the State Supreme Court Appellate Division, and formerly an Erie County District Attorney. Three of Kevin's uncles were attorneys in western New York, and his cousin James was an assistant district attorney. The name Dillon, therefore, was one that was already quite familiar in Buffalo legal and political circles, which perhaps added a further bit of excitement to an already sensational matter when the press learned he would be defending Joseph Christopher. Teresa Christopher had hired him to represent her son on the weekend following the search of her home. In the few days that had passed between the search on Wednesday and Dylan's entry into the case on Sunday, news of a prime suspect in the twenty-two caliber killings had already exploded in the media. Though he yet knew almost nothing about his client or the evidence against him, Dylan was well aware from the moment that the suspect's distraught mother came to see him that this would be an enormously complex and highly public case. Judging by news accounts, the prosecution appeared to already be operating in high gear. He informed Teresa that he would need co-counsel, and immediately contacted his friend and colleague, Mark Mahoney. Mahoney was also 31 years old with an office in downtown Buffalo. Like Kevin Dillon, he had received his law degree from the University of Buffalo Law School. Both had done their undergraduate work at Catholic Institutes. Dylan at Canisius College, Mahoney at Notre Dame, and both came from large Irish families. Each was a superior young jurist. The similarities ended there. They were near opposites in temperament and style, Dylan having a more subdued and tempered approach, Mahoney a more intimidating presence in a courtroom, who wouldn't demur from unleashing a razor-sharp retort on a prosecutor when the situation warranted. They had never tried a case together before, as Kevin Dillon would soon after tell a reporter. He and Mahoney worked well together, and their differences complemented each other. Dillon acknowledged they would argue like hell on some points, which he felt made for robust legal teamwork. Mahoney would not hesitate to say he could never see himself being a prosecutor. He was a staunch defender of rights and viewed the defense position as the guardian of the constitutional and fundamental rights afforded to all. His legal sensibilities were therefore immediately on alert upon learning that the search executed upon the Christopher home had been sparked by statements made by Joseph. While he was under care at a psychiatric facility, managing the wildfire press and publicity that had already engulfed Christopher presented an added challenge— and was by no means an insignificant matter. Joseph Christopher had been identified by name in a television newscast on the same night his family home had been searched. This had immediately set off his widespread identification on TV, radio, and in print. Before Dylan and Mahoney had even been retained to represent him, the media had disseminated details of items confiscated during the searches and his arrest in the Army on charges of stabbing a black soldier. On April 25th, the day before Teresa Christopher hired Dillon and Mahoney, and before Christopher had even been charged in any of the Buffalo murders, the Courier Express reported that Christopher bragged to nurses about the shootings and stabbings of Buffalo area blacks. If ever there were a case where defense attorneys had to hit the ground running, this was it. Melvin Lobbett and Thomas Rash had returned to Buffalo from Fort Benning on April 24th. In addition to the nurses and staff psychiatrist, they had interviewed witnesses to the Coles' assault, the guard whom Christopher had stabbed with a pen, and the stockade commander, Captain Rayford Ames, who discussed Private Christopher's time in confinement. Ames explained that Christopher had lacerated his penis while in a second-floor cell, and that another prisoner had witnessed this. Ames further confirmed the written reports the army had provided of Christopher's conduct during his incarceration in the stockade, that Christopher had refused to eat, was very depressed, and had problems with guards and other prisoners. Ames told investigators that this was very unusual behavior for a person in confinement in the military. He added that Christopher was a loner and read the Bible. Christopher did have one friend in the stockade another prisoner named Robert, who was also from Buffalo. Robert had since been discharged from the military for possessing and selling marijuana and had returned to the Buffalo area. Lobby and Rash relayed this information back to the task force, who promptly interviewed Robert. I was in the brig for about three weeks when this guy by the name of Joseph Christopher came for stabbing a black eye in his company for calling him a fag. Robert told the investigator, Somebody told me that he was from Buffalo, and I started talking to him, and I found out that he at one time worked at Deaconess Hospital in Buffalo, where I used to work. He worked in the kitchen, but I didn't know him then. He described Christopher as about five feet nine, very thin, with a small frame and large hands and a large head. He wasn't into drugs, but was heavy into religion. By this, I mean he was into spiritual stuff, meditating all the time, used to take his red prayer book with him to chow. He told me that he was a Catholic, and he wore a scapular around his neck. He was a loner, and didn't smoke or use alcohol, and was very adamant about the fact that he didn't use drugs. He was extremely interested in survival training, nutrition, physical fitness, and emergency medical training. Once we were in the cell block, and he told me that he and a friend of his from Buffalo wasted some niggers. I don't remember if he specifically mentioned where, but after he said this to me, I told him that I didn't want to hear about it, and I thought it was bullshit. I didn't want to hear any more about it because he was already in for attempted murder, and I didn't want to get involved any more than I had to. While we were in the brig, Joe also attacked another black, a guy who had a big mouth. Joe went after him twice. Returning to the topic of Joseph's friend, Robert stated, Christopher said that this friend of his in Buffalo used to sit around his apartment and talk about survival, EMT training, and nutrition. He mentioned his name, but I can't remember it right now. Christopher never talked about broads or where he used to go out to have a good time like everybody else, and in fact, used to bitch at other guys for talking about drugs or broads and fooling around. I don't think that he was a homosexual, but I don't think he was a completely normal, I mean that he would never give a woman a tumble. He told me that he had been to New York City recently, and also that he either met someone from boot camp there, or that his buddy from Buffalo met him there. He said that he didn't like New York City, but didn't say any more about it. The investigator inquired whether they had ever discussed weapons, and Robert responded that they had. Joe and I talked quite a bit about weapons, especially handguns, I seem to remember him telling me that he owned a handgun, but can't remember what kind. He didn't display a lot of expertise regarding handguns, but acted like he was interested in them. I have a strong interest in guns, so he and I talked a lot about them. I'm sure those conversations also included knives. Joe also used to tell me about a hunting camp that his dad owned in the town of Ellington, He told me that his dad used to take him there for the usual things, hiking, fishing, and camping. He really liked his dad. I got a lot of negative vibrations from Joe regarding his mother, but I can't pinpoint why. Back at Fort Benning, Lobbitt and Rash obtained permission to search the belongings of Private Christopher. They seized a black beret, two black plastic-framed glasses, military issue, one pair of gold wire-framed glasses and a Greyhound bus ticket issued December 11th, 1980. Christopher had departed Fort Benning by bus on December 19th for Christmas leave, at which time he had been wearing a green dress A uniform and black army issue raincoat. Per training regulations, Christopher had no civilian clothing in his possession. He had purchased a round-trip ticket. The packet indicated he had traveled through North Carolina and Virginia to Washington, D.C., and through to New York City, though the last coupon, from Washington to New York, had not been pulled. According to the bus route schedules, he would have arrived in New York sometime on December 20th. The return portion of his bus ticket was unused. Christopher had been observed at the Columbus Airport by a platoon sergeant on either January 2nd or 3rd. The official company records indicated that he had returned to his basic training company on January 2, 1981, at 4.50 p.m. In the company of CID agents, Lobin and Rash had visited Private Christopher in the stockade. Agent Carr explained to Christopher that he would be photographed by two investigators from Buffalo. He was removed from his cell and Lobbet and Rash proceeded to take 23 color photographs of him wearing various pieces of clothing and different hats. Christopher cooperated without protest. A few minutes into the photo session, he turned to Investigator Rash and asked him who he was. Rash explained, and Christopher's reply was, Yeah. Minutes later, Christopher asked to see the identification of Rash and Lobbet. They both complied. Christopher examined the IDs, then wanted to grab and inspect Lobbit's badge. Lobbit showed him the badge, but wouldn't allow him to hold it. He seemed much more interested in seeing the badge than in anything else that was going on. Lobbit asked Christopher, Do you wear tinted glasses? Christopher removed the wire-framed glasses he was wearing, looked at them, then replaced them. He did this twice. He gave no verbal answer. After the photos were taken, Mel Lobbit told Christopher that he and Rash were returning to Buffalo and asked if there was anything they could do for him. Do you want me to talk to your mother, Teresa, your sisters, or Lydia Bianchi? Christopher stood mute. Lobbit wrote in his personal observations of Joseph Christopher that he was ashen-looking. He walked slowly in a shuffle. Everything Christopher did was slow. He appears to be heavy in the chest and small in the buttocks. He noted a tattoo of a snake on his left forearm. Both investigators described Christopher's short hair as curly and dark brown with a reddish cast. Lobbett was of the opinion that Christopher bore a resemblance to the Rochester composite and appeared slightly younger than the New York City composite. Thomas Rash felt that Christopher resembled a composite when he was photographed wearing dark-rimmed glasses, a ski cap, and an army fatigue jacket. He wrote that Christopher was cooperative in all phases of photographing him, that he had a blank stare throughout, and seldom spoke. The last person Lobbett and Rash interviewed was Father Michael Freeman. They spoke with the Catholic chaplain at the stockade in the presence of Captain Rayford Ames, and Agent Tom Carr. The priest explained that he had met Private Christopher within a day or two after his arrest and initial confinement to the stockade. Father Freeman had been told that there was a soldier at the detention facility who had asked to see a priest. Learning that the soldier was from Buffalo, which was Freeman's hometown also, Father Freeman had visited Christopher and had a discussion with him at that time, which he felt might interest the investigators. Father Freeman said that Christopher had been very depressed and nervous, which led the priest to ask him if he wanted a psychiatric evaluation. Christopher replied that he did. Christopher had spoken of his background and problems he was having in his infantry training brigade. According to Father Freeman, Christopher had released him to speak with doctors or anyone else who could help him. As Freeman related the conversation... It was just on his background, from a broken home, feeling of guilt that he had over the death of his father, the anger he had in reference to blacks and minorities. He felt persecuted by them. I thought that might be from where he went to school, that he could never get along with them. He reflected on how he was being picked upon by blacks in infantry training. They were calling him a faggot and picking on him not giving him any peace of mind. I went back over his situation at home, how he got into the army. He mentioned that he had broken up with his girlfriend and he was depressed about that. He thought that maybe he wanted to be a priest, and he went down to New York City for a period of time. He wanted to enter a seminary. The seminary wouldn't accept him. After being in New York City for a while, he returned back to Buffalo. He reflected on wanting to get into the army and a depression he was in, and not wanting to associate with his relatives. There was a going-away party, which was also his birthday party, and he refused to be with his relatives. He'd rather be alone. Speaking of what Christopher had told him about his experience in the army and the circumstances of his arrest, Father Freeman said, Again, he reiterated the blacks picking on him. He was using a knife to defend himself against one who called him a fag. This was the second time investigators had heard that Christopher told someone he stabbed Coles for calling him a fag. The CID had interviewed all the witnesses to the stabbing as well as other men in the platoon and company officers. None could recall any interaction whatsoever between Christopher and Coles prior to the assault. According to what police had learned so far of Christopher's family, Freeman's statement about Christopher having come from a broken home also seemed to be an error, though whether Christopher had actually said this, or Father Freeman had somehow misinterpreted one of his statements, could not be determined. Father Freeman told the investigators that he felt the conversation he'd had with Christopher could be helpful to them because of the situation in Buffalo and the fact that Christopher had been there at the time. He added, however, that Christopher had made no statements at all about any violence in either New York City or Buffalo. You mentioned his anger at ethnic races. He definitely has a problem dealing with ethnics? Lobbett asked. With blacks? Freeman answered. With blacks. Specifically blacks, okay, because of certain things that happened in his lifetime related to blacks? He wouldn't go into exactly what it was in Buffalo, the priest answered. I picked up more that it might be a school situation because of a white being a minority there. Labad asked, Father, did you see Joseph Christopher today? I did, Freeman replied. He had visited Christopher about an hour before, but Christopher had not said anything to him. Does he appear alert? Labad asked. He's alert. More so than at other times I've talked to him. Again, that could have been because of the starvation he was on, the not eating. He did not want to talk today. I never brought up Buffalo. I never brought up New York City or Rochester. I told him I was there. Originally, I had intended to go down to see him after Easter anyway. I called the hospital and found out he was back here. The stockade. My whole conversation with him today had to do with asking him to cooperate and to talk to people. You know, whatever he wanted to talk about, either with Dr. Law or to myself or to law enforcement officers. If he'd do that, it might help with his problems. Because he isn't cooperating with speaking to people. He's clamming right up. Recalling his earlier conversations with Christopher, Father Freeman said he had never mentioned the twenty-two caliber killings nor any shootings or stabbings in western New York. Did he say anything about New York City? Nothing other than the fact that he was there. He went to New York City to join a seminary, and no seminary would have him, obviously. He was as disturbed talking to them as he was to me. He wouldn't be able to pass the psych test.
3: All righty. That will do us for this week. We will pick up Next week, still in chapter fourteen, uh, mosey and right on through the text context of white supremacy. The Catherine Massey Book Club number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one. If you would like to participate, email is until justice at gmail dot com. Now we had Dr. Neil Krause mentioned before that's the one his white brother dialed into the program. Now in that program I asked him, you know, he wrote this whole book Race, Neighborhoods, Community Power in Buffalo and dealing with the 1980s. I believe it goes from like 1937 to 1997 somewhere about. But covering these years, not one mention of Joseph G. Christopher. Now he talks about so-called school integration in Buffalo that's happening in the 80s in Buffalo I mean now Jesus Christ Brown v. Board of Education was 30 years before all this but here we are 80s in Buffalo Uh, and I said some of the folks that were here wrote in I think uh, Miss C wrote on on Facebook like come on man like either these white people have made some sort of pact like we are just not going to talk about these events we're done you know with all this Joey Carving up black people in Buffalo, we're just not going to talk about that. I say it's no way you can research, really, anything related to Buffalo, Western New York, really, in the 1980s, and miss this case. Now, this is the Buffalo Courier Express, Sunday, June 7, 1981. A little bit ahead of where we are in the text, but not too far. We're at like end of April. 1981 this is June 7 1981 so the story at the bottom of the page that's pretty much takes up the entire bottom half of the page defending Joseph Christopher an unlikely pair who we just heard from or heard about Mark Mahoney Kevin Dillon at the top of that page and we just heard in the book hey Joey saying maybe had some problems from schools white people were a minority there we heard in the book even they said his dad nicholas let him drive to school because they were fighting on the bus on the june 7 1981 sunday paper in buffalo above the report on joseph christopher they have the busing in buffalo section switch of schools turns fear to joy for two city moms and they have a big report where they have one black mother and one white mother and their children had to switch to integrate the schools and they were both really nervous about this when this all started but now the school years over and they worked out great and they're both really happy Uh, so if you're even researching bussing in Buffalo hey I would probably if I was gonna look at school integration so-called in the 1980s in Buffalo I'd probably look at every one of these reports busing in buffalo and pick out the best there's no way while you're doing that for this time period you're gonna miss who is this joseph christopher guy that they keep talking about like what what is going on oh he was killing all the black people like oh how would you see that and oh that's not important to my research on racism in buffalo in the 1980s i'm talking about other things ignorance, sloppy research you didn't really dig that hard to begin with, or racism. Not anything else to explain this, in my opinion. And this is not the only time. I mean, it's bunches of times where you can go through and same page, one of the reports will be about school integration in Buffalo. Big problem. And then right below that, Joseph G. Christopher indicted. And, oh, what did they find at the house? And, oh, my God, soldier killed all these niggers. Let's see. Uh, If you have commentary and did not get to share at all, definitely get a hand up now so we'll get your thoughts in. Let me see. Make sure I read the final comments from one of our investors, uh, what we missed from him. Let's see. For chapter 14, since we did not get that far. One, he told me that he was a Catholic and he wore a scapular around his neck. There are two types of scapulars monastic which is a long cloth worn as a cloak by monks and nuns the other is devotional which is two small pieces of cloth worn around the neck I guess Joey wore the small one. 2. he and a friend of his from Buffalo Wasted some niggers. I don't remember if he specifically mentioned where. Returning to the topic of Joseph's friend, Robert stated, Christopher said that this friend of his in Buffalo used to sit around his apartment and talk about survival, EMT training, and nutrition. He mentioned his name, but I can't remember it right now. Did the investigation seriously pursue the possibility of accomplices? does not seem as if they did. We asked uh, Matt Greida about that just because, you know, other folks had said it seemed like this could have been a two-person thing and all these attacks and all the rest. He said uh, Joey was not a gregarious type person. He didn't have any friends. He wasn't attached to anybody. It didn't seem like he you know, was working with someone or even had the social aptitude to be working with someone. Now, I mean, he couldn't have been that isolated because Donna and, you know, the rest of it, but that was what Matt Grider said. Yeah, uh, Let's see. Number four. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Did I miss one? Oh, yeah. I missed one. Number three. Sorry. According to Father Friedman, it was just on his background: broken home, guilt over the death of his father, anger to blacks and minorities prosecuted by them, creating excuses. Some having no validity, he wasn't from a broken home, and empathy for poor Joey by Father Freeman. We see how this tactic is used today when they discuss these psychopathic killers. Absolutely, they did the same thing with Jeffrey Dahmer. Number four, nothing other than the fact that he was there. He went to New York City to join a seminary, and no seminary would have him, obviously, if he was as disturbed talking to them as he was to me. He wouldn't be able to pass the psych test. I guess the psych test does not screen for pedophiles or they just ignore the results ooh the burn ooh but I did mention that earlier in the program and we should look did they have settlements in Buffalo I was serious about that gonna do that if I get free time other people so that's two research projects what happened at Canisius College October 1996 and then Catholic Church in Buffalo do they have any settlements Let's see. Oh, and we didn't get that far, so we'll stop right there. Let's see. Folks who dialed in that we missed totally. Irie, did you have commentary? Uh, we missed you totally. Did you have commentary on the portion of the reading we
4: talked about today? Yeah. Um, I caught the tail end of it. I've been trying to catch up on pictures, uh, but I did uh, wonder as um, – as i heard uh i guess someone was talking to an investigator and they said that he didn't have much he he didn't get good thoughts about his relationship with his mom so i was actually wondering a little bit if there was some type of situation of uh sexual abuse not saying that he didn't do what he did based out of racism just dealing with uh his sexual um Incorrectness, right? I was wondering if he either had a crush on the gentleman that his father liked that was like the atypical type of guy. But then I kind of canceled that out just now when I heard the, the person say he didn't like his mom. And I'm wondering now if his mom and he had a sexual relationship. And the reason why I'm wondering that is because, um, I read, uh, I was reading a book called Mothers and Sons many years ago when I was six seconds. And the author, uh, said that if a mother does something, sometimes it could be something just as small as allowing a male child after the age of like pubescence, To see them naked or you know something with obvious overt sexual tone that it will steer that male child toward homosexuality because they're refusing that that abuse and I didn't hear everything else so I don't know if they explained you know got in detail about the homosexuality you know like his reasons if he gave any or whatever but You know, that and then him attacking, you know, black men, it's some type of sexual envy there too. I'm just wondering if basically the root is, uh, him having a sexual encounter with his mom. Plus, his dad died and they in a hick, that's a metaphor, they in a country town. Probably ain't that many people around. He sounds like he's in the mental position to either pursue her for it or her ask for it. And then the letters he wrote like, Oh, I love you so much. It hurts. But now I'm hearing he didn't, he probably didn't even like his mom. Hmm. Hmm. That's what I was wondering. And I'm going to catch up on that interview you did with the guy you just talked about, because yeah, that's pretty amazing. Missing this, (laughs) this situation, this guy, nah, he just, yeah, I'm with you. He probably decided to admit it. That was um all I want to say other than, pardon me, I almost forgot. Please, one day, can we listen to 48 Laws of Power in the book club? The end. Thank you.
3: Much obliged, Irie. We did. So now we've had several folks who've had uh, your same theory about you know some sort of sexual abuse from the parents, the mom. I think we had folks even earlier today were talking about, is there some sort of perhaps, I think that was Bay Area mom. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, who's saying, is there some sort of uh, Oedipal complex uh, going on here with the dad, I think she was saying, not with the mom. Like Several, several folks, several listeners uh, have written in and or called in uh, with that same sort of theory for what's happening here again not you know justifying certainly savage racist killer but just trying to figure out what is what is happening here all the levels of uh, pathology anywho um any other folks here they wanted to get in uh non-clemson grad missy bay area mom comments you all want to get in just listening that's fine too grant to iris point there will be more to come about his perhaps antisexual conduct uh and leanings for the like i said We've really only read about half of the book. We're a little over. We now at this point we're a little over the halfway point. But I mean, not a whole lot. We have like a substantial amount of reading. That's why I said like I was gonna give the footnote about Ernie. And then I looked. and was like, oh my gosh, like Ernie is a, a huge character in the second half of the book. So I can be quiet, and we'll just have to wait. Yet, yeah, so there will be lots more. So you'll have to maybe come back in a few weeks after we've gotten several chapters further along and give us your update. Uh, let's see my notes uh, for this week again she said you know the indictments uh, as April 1981 that exploded in the media uh, that it just set off widespread identification on TV radio and in print that's why I said for people not knowing about this event even when we have these white scholars on the program this was widely talked about widely news reports I've played news reports for everything like uh, Tony Brown and Nightline and all these major news outlets and print outlets all over the country talked about this so you know that I mean even that when these scholars have come on here white scholars have come on here who teach it even that I've been thinking about like man you teach at the University of Buffalo And you don't know about Joseph G. Christopher like and you teach on race, racism, excuse me. You teach on white supremacy, racism at the University of Buffalo and you write books about the history of racism in Buffalo. And you don't know about Joseph G. Christopher. That is disgraceful. If you teach at the university at Ole Miss. University of Mississippi, you should not be allowed to teach there. You don't know who James Meredith is like, come on. Joseph G. Christopher is not James Meredith, just major events that have taken place in this town, on this campus, you should be informed about. Same thing. You're a professor at uh, Georgia Tech, Emory, Morehouse. You teach about uh, racism, the history of Atlanta. Someone says, who's Wayne Williams? Oh, Wayne Williams, I do... Wayne Williams. Wayne Williams. Does he pray for the Braves? Wayne Williams? I don't know. (laughs) F. You should not be allowed to teach here. Let's see. I thought they gave the note they said that Christopher was in the brig in Fort Benning Because he had been teased about bedwetting. I thought that was what they said. But then this week we got two different people who said it was because he had been called a fag. I mean, it's teasing either way. I'm just, you know. So the bedwetting, maybe that was a separate incident of teasing. uh, Or maybe that was kind of all together. I I could see that you went to bed, you know, fag went to bed, that sort of thing. Again, now, none of this warrants, I got to kill you. You teased me about wetting the bed or you called me a fag. Now I got to kill you. I mean. What in the world? There's lots of name-calling in the world. Uh, let's see. So this is Rob. His friend from Buffalo says, uh, once we're in the cell box, uh we wasted some niggers. Now, I do, now that is interesting. The we would at least be worthy of it. And it's so convenient that this guy doesn't remember his name. Hmm. Uh, and does he recount niggness? He just quoting that's the way he told it to me so that's the way i'm telling it back to you he said that to me niggers whatever it is he tells him i don't want to hear about it i'm already in enough trouble intelligent uh while we were in the brig joe also attacked another black a guy who had a big mouth now that i had a pause for that's kind of homoerotic given everything we've heard in this book i would like what in metaphor what do you mean he had a big mouth joe went after him twice now again all the people that he's attacked with the exception of Kim Edmiston white woman and then if we want to encounter this week Donna his girlfriend all the people that he has attacked black and this dark complexion so called Latino fella oh and then he the half white soldier from last week so it seems he is able to pick out these non-white males. The darker you are, I got to kill you. You're a threat. I got to kill you. Maddie, you're a threat to my manhood. I got to kill you. He says he used to Bitch at other guys about drugs, or broads and fooling around. Now, this, we've had all these people who just said, man, he was doing acid and speed and smoking marijuana all the time. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and we haven't even got to, now, is he talking about exchanging fellatio for food? <laughs> so, like, come on, come on, the hypocrisy. That's white culture right there, right there. Toting a Bible in one hand and killing niggers in the other. Snorting cocaine while I'm doing it. Let's see. Joe used to tell me about a hunting camp that his dad owned in the town of Ellington. He told me that his dad used to take him there for usual things, hiking, fishing, and camping. He really liked his dad. I got a lot of negative vibrations from Joe regarding his mother, but I can't pinpoint why. Now, that's interesting, too, given, you know, some people that say, hmm, is there some sort of sexual thing there or what is going on and and all the rest of it because I thought that was like you know she's defending him and he's writing all these letters and even writing to her where people said these letters seem kind of odd and what's going on here and then he's writing to her that they're calling him a fag and I'm mad about it man Uh, this case should have been lots talked about a lot more have a lot more minds assessing what is going on here make sense of all of this uh, let's see. Lobbit wrote in his Percival observations of Joseph Christopher that he was ashen-looking. <laughs> what? Pale? Is that what That sounds like? If you're ashen-looking, you can't be vibrant and full of color, right? If you're ashen-looking. He walked slowly in a shuffle. Everything Christopher did was slow. He appears to be heavy in the chest and small in the buttocks. <laughs> what is going on here? Like, what, what relevance does that have to a police investigation? He looks heavy in the chest. And sm- what? Did they ask any of the witnesses that? Like, when you were being stabbed, did he look small in the buttocks? If Please, if, if this is standard investigation, right, this is what they ask the person or if we're making a health assessment maybe right to see you know have you been eating and all the rest of it are you fasting because they talked about that if that's normal then just check me Gus you know you're being retarded you know get it together but what small and the homoeroticism abounds Uh, let's see Uh, the busing I got that again I told you so we had that last week his dad said hey ride the bus the negros are causing you problems on the bus. I know all this busing and everything. Go ahead and drive. Then we come around this week. Father Freeman says, so they're talking about his conversations. The investigators, they say, so you mentioned his anger at the ethnic races. Ethnic races. He definitely had a problem dealing with ethnics. With blacks. He didn't say, he didn't say black and brown people. He didn't say POCs. He didn't say marginalized. He didn't say people of color. Blacks. With blacks? Specifically blacks? Okay, because of certain things that happened in his lifetime related to blacks? He wouldn't go into exactly what it was in Buffalo. The priest answered, I picked up more that it might be a school situation because of a white being a minority there. Not just Red. They got a whole section in the Buffalo Courier that lasted for months. I think a whole year bussing in Buffalo. How do you research education? That's one of the nine areas. How would you be looking at this over a year and miss this case? Especially if they're even wondering, dang, is this part of his white terrorism? Mad because he had to go to school with the niggers? 'Cause Because a whole lot of white people this was their excuse for racism at that time, may still be. Not gonna force my little white girls and boys be in school with these little raping negras. Let's see. Anything else? Yeah, we can stop there. We can stop there. Ah, We've only got halfway through the book. Let's see. Oh, we didn't miss anybody. Uh, I could have read more articles. There's so many uh, reports uh, to share. Let me see. Did I miss about the goofy friend oh I'll give you I think I'll I'll share the the New York Times report if I can find it without taking too much time and energy because that one they mention black people specifically let's see uh, so this is the New York Times right at the time of the right at the time of the indictment of Joseph G. Christopher okay so the report is Buffalo suspects friends are mystified They say most of the friends who have also been questioned by the police requested anonymity to avoid public association with the case. Private Christopher's family declined to be interviewed. Joe worked with blacks. He knew them and he didn't have any prejudice against them, said a white friend who was in the home improvement business with Mr. Christopher in the mid 1970s and who saw him as recently as last December when the private was home on furlough. He just didn't talk about blacks. The friend added, he might have made a passing remark, but nothing more than I or many other people would have made. Ernest Smith who is black, oh no, we're going to get Arnie again, recalled that he worked as a maintenance man with Mr. Christopher and socialized with him in 1978 and 79. Joe once said that he had been ripped off by some blacks when he was a boy, Mr. Smith said, but that's about all he ever said about blacks. He didn't seem to have any strong feelings about race. If he did these killings, something has to have come over him lately. And it's just lots more of that in the book. Uh, Excuse me, in the newspaper uh, report. Again, this is in the New York Times. Buffalo suspects friends are mystified. Maybe this is what they said in the book. His friends coming and sticking together for him. We got your back, Joe. Not going to let you just have you talking about you all dirty out here. We got you. Indeed, Uh, we will pick up next week continuing in chapter 14 we'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism Uh, more tidbits on fashion as well as COVID-19 in the workplace same time 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific and we should have more programs on Buffalo so we'll have even more opportunities to ask white people who even teach about racism in Buffalo do you know about Joseph G. Christopher and again like I said we can think about that as we go down the home stretch of this book over the next few weeks is this this a case that we should know about and if so why? The fact that seemingly no one knows details about this even when a similar event happens in almost the exact same location in the east side of Buffalo even then it doesn't get mentioned hardly We'll ponder on all of that as we proceed. Wrapping it for for sure, what we heard this week, sobriety would be best. If you are out and about, anyone being hostile, they could be Peyton Gendron. Exit. If you're in a vehicle, you are sober, buckled. You are not on your mobile device. We need all of our attention so we can be aware of what is happening around us and we are trying to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out, thanks all for tuning in. No name calling, no gossiping, no reckless production of offspring. Cow signing out, thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, That's brother. A victim. A victim of four hundred years of conditioning. Shut
5: up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.